This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And this is Jacob Bratz with Longleaf Reptilia, and you're listening to the Herpeticulture Podcast. Part of the Herpeticulture Network. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> My name is Jacob Bratz, Longleaf Reptilia. This is episode 140 of the Herpeticulture Podcast, part of the Herpeticulture Network. That's right. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. Yeah, I did that kind of backwards, I realized. A little, we're, whatever. All right. It works. It's all that matters. And today, we are joined by Mr. Dr. Warren Booth. Mr. Slash Doctor. Mr. Slash Dr. Doctor. Dr. Slash Mr. Warren Booth. <laughs> Warren Booth. Great to be here. <laughs> here What's tonight, happening? Warren? Great. Yeah, everything's yeah, This has been, been a long time coming, man. I wanted to yeah. have you on for a while, and I know we've we've talked about it off and on, uh, and so I'm, I'm glad we finally yeah. were able to make it happen. For sure. No, it's great. You know, Before I, I mean, we get too deep into this, because this is going to be a fun, pack-filled episode, and before we get too deep, this, this episode is brought to you by Steve Snakeshuary with Steve's Snakeshuary and Venom Hot Sauce. Yeah, yeah, Check him out. Doing a lot of cool things over in Louisiana. Uh, making his own personal hot sauce. If you like hot sauce, check it out. It's very good. Justin and I have tried them all. And uh, highly recommend if you're a hot sauce connoisseur. And the bottles are cool, too. All types of snake-based stuff. So check him out. Check out his Snakeshuary. He's doing a lot of cool things. Support At the very him. least, it's memorabilia and stuff yeah. that just... I like to con- collect weird sort of reptile-related yeah. stuff to keep on my bookshelf, so... Yeah, I still have all the bottles that we got. Yeah, yeah I got them all yeah. in a bag. It'd be cool to use them and grow little plants out of them, like do some... Dude, uh, that's a good idea. Yeah, do yeah, some cut, do cuttings. That. Yeah, I have to do that, sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, you guys check him out. Too. Awesome dude, doing awesome things, and uh, rock and rolling. If you What's guys that? haven't been, if you guys haven't been to Bob Ashley's place in uh, New Mexico, the Chiricahua Desert Museum, it's all about that. Everything reptile related, everything you could imagine, whether it's a beer bottle or uh, anything else, you know, anything that's slightly related to reptiles, it's all there. Hmm. So you guys would probably love that. Yeah. You should do. You could. You should, I've, I've, I've heard of it and I've seen pictures. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great. Which place. museum? Oh, yeah, the Chiricahua Desert Museum. It's fantastic. Yeah, Bob Ashley that runs the um, that partly runs the NARBC shoes. So you should take a visit there. It's pretty cool. Oh yeah. I have to check it out. Yeah. So tonight we're here to talk about some boas. Yeah. Um, we haven't had a boa mostly corallus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean there is some some red tail stuff, some Central American stuff that i also like to sort of touch on a little bit i'm all about um, i'm all about my red tails man like i that's <clears throat> i have a real soft spot for red tails i don't know what it is but i don't have any i don't but i, I absolutely can, I love red tail bows i have what's that i can fix that <laughs> I, I didn't get oh you can fix that i yeah. mm. Don't tell me, Warren, because uh, that kind. might be a possibility. Because I absolutely love red tails. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. Well, you might talk. be hearing from me soon. <laughs> Over the years, I've worked with a lot of stuff. I, I, with I was big into to Nicaraguan. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 
I've worked with a lot of Central that was Americans. My thing for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to talk about whatever you just want to talk about. So okay. Yeah. Cool. So I think we have a little bit of a delay yeah, here. A, bit delay. a little bit of a delay. So what we'll do is we'll take long pauses if we'll make this work. Okay. So we have to be talking about episode. I can shut up and come back again. Whatever, whatever you think. I think it's just my inter my internet sucks. I need to upgrade and pay for higher internet. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that's good. So, where we start? Where are we starting with this bad boy? We're gonna start on, I guess, a quick background as far as, I mean, you're you're a doctor. Mm -hmm. So your background as far as academics, um, the hobby itself, why you, you know, why is there a focus on boas and what is the main focus and is that focus Corallis? Well, <clears throat> my, uh, my background is evolutionary genetics, you know, so I got fascinated by Mendelian genetics years ago, the idea of, you know, thinking back to Gregor Mendel and pea plants, you know, like what makes tall and small and what's the heritability, but they weren't interesting to me. So I, um, I started breeding Siamese fighting fish, you know, better fish, you know, cause you could get reds and blues and all these different colors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of cool, you know, but then as I accumulated masses of them, I realized there was getting too many of them. And I, 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 I got fascinated by reptiles through a number of different means. And then at that point realized that there were color morphs of reptiles you could do the same thing with, right? So king snakes and corn snakes and hognose snakes and so on. And I started moving into that direction. So I um, I started keeping those, but you know, it wasn't I wasn't doing it because you know it's just because of genetic. I was fascinated by genetics in, in general, um, but the reptiles kind of went hand in hand with it. And they've stayed that way, you know. So that was, I, you know, I started my, I did my degree in genetics in 1996 is when I started that. Um, so what is that? It's 24, 25 years. And I've been keeping reptiles for about the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I started with leopard geckos, hognose snakes, king snakes, and then boas, pythons, and, and all the way through, you know. So now I've got a whole vast array of those different things. But um, I've stayed fascinated with it, I think because I've been fascinated by genetics, fascinated by Mendelian genetics, the idea of heritability, you know, that I can cross this and that and make that. It's kind of a cool project. You know, the fact that we can do that is kind of neat. And so I think that's why I've done it. And also, right. reptiles are just kind of cool for many reasons, you know. Physiologically, they're really neat. Ecologically, they're really cool. And um, and they're just cool animals to maintain, you know. So I'm, I'm I'm kind of fascinated by them in general, you know. And I get I get I go in directions, so you know. A, a sort of a dumb. Go ahead. Sort of a dumb question. I guess we'll we'll get to that afterwards. But is there's Mendelian, and then what other? Well, that's other it. Other genetics outside of well, Mendelian, are, right? As far know. as like how they how they operate. Well, there's there's Mendelian where we can say right heterozygous and, and homozygous and so on. And then there's polygenic traits, which are a little bit more difficult to understand in terms of what are we going to get? Um, mm -hmm. So 
one's easy and one's not so easy. One requires a lot more work and crosses in terms of selecting lines, but um, you know, yeah. So. I got you. So, at what point did Boas come into the into the fold? Oh, Boas came into it, um, I think, in um, nineteen ninety nine. A friend of mine, <coughs> a really great friend of mine, Jonathan Harvey, uh, who was a close friend in Northern Ireland, and who actually now lives in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I'll be going to see in two weeks' time. <laughs> uh, weird coincidence that we moved around the world at the same time um uh he and i were both really into corrales boas, and um and we had a friend in england in london called clive osborne and clive was an importer so he had boa nebulosa borophius all these really rare lines of boas but he got this group of um of sonoran desert boas um which are now known as boa sigma and there were six animals, and he said to Jonathan and I, he's like, are you interested in these? And we bought them from him. I kept the largest pair. Jonathan kept another, the smaller pair, and then we sold two. Or one died, and then we sold the other one. The pair that I kept proved to be het anarthristic, which was not known in the, in, and hasn't been known since then in, in Sonoran boas. So it produced an anarthristic Sonoran boa that was mm -hmm. locality here. And... Um, and from then, I, I kind of propagated that line, and I swapped those for albinos and hypomelanistics. And you got to realize at this point, uh, albino boas were worth maybe two thousand dollars in the UK. Hypo boas were worth two thousand twenty five hundred bucks yeah. in the UK, so they're worth a lot of money. So I built up a really um, substantial collection of of or of of morph boas in the UK from this one pair that I didn't expect would do this. And and that really developed the whole line from then on. It it you know it, it's not something I expected, um, but it, it just grew from there. And 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 I and I I got my PhD, and then I moved to the US, and I exported twenty eight boas from from Ireland to the US, which included um, Sonoran anarthristics and albinos and all this different variety of stuff, and. At that point, things exploded because the availability of animals here is totally different than the availability of animals in the UK and, and Europe. You know, so if I want to get a, right, I need to go to, to the Hampshire or the Hartford in Europe. And that, that was very different than here. Here I can buy it and tomorrow morning it's here via FedEx, right? It's on my doorstep. So that changed things dramatically. And, um, and I really focused on boas and, and I, and I lost my way with Corrales, which I'd focused on a lot, but I focused on, on boas. I focused on um, a locality boas, the Sonoran stuff and the various island boas. And that's what I worked on. Um, and it's only in the last maybe five years that I've really brought back into Corrales in a really big way, um, in a huge way. Um, but, but I've got 70 boa constrictor boa kind of localities. And I've got about, probably about the same for, um, for Corrales. And then I've got Duns Pythons and wow. Rainbows and Womas and Nelson's King Snake or Milk Snakes. And I've got Fair Eye and I've got Hognose Snakes and I've got a bunch of other things, you know. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. wow. Man, Fair Eye are awesome. I, I fully regret getting rid of mine. They were mm. fun, so much variation. Baby, that was so much fun. Babies are a nightmare. They're really tiny. They're so yeah. tiny. Yeah. But the cool thing about them is 
that you can you can assess through them really easily. You put a mouse tail to the mouth and they eat it instantly. You know, they're like an indigo snake. They just like <laughs> touch it and it goes. You know, like all right, cool. You know, like I used to in in Ireland, I used to breed corn snakes a lot. Um, um, you know, 30, 25, 30 liter cl clutches a year. And the babies were all so easy to eat. So whenever a friend of mine gave me these yeah. steroids, oh, this would be easy. No, until I assist fed them and they were just great, you know, so fun stuff. That's all some of these beards are that I hatched out. Like they, there was a couple that were kind of hesitant to start to eat. But when I give them a tail, as soon as it was in there, they chowed down like they were starving. Yeah. And so yeah. it's like, what's where's where's the disconnect? Like, do you guys yeah. just not it's, know it's what like, you're doing? Yeah. yeah, you watch um, you watch like indigo snakes eat, yeah. and they just like instantly. And it's literally you touch the mouth of these guys, and they just go into that mode of feeding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So if they're a live pinky or a, or a drop feed something, and they 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 don't know what to do. It just sits. You know, it's funny you say that. Um, I produced, um, or I didn't produce, my snakes did, a, a litter of Brazilian rainbow boas about two months ago. And um, the first meal, people said, just just drop a defrosted um, hopper mice in the, in the enclosure and they'll eat it. And I'm like, no, nah, not a chance. I've been breeding boas for 27 years. This is not the way it works. And literally, I went, there was... Uh, 12 babies i dropped a defrosted hopper mice in each one the next morning everyone gone no unreal, unreal. i've never seen that before <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. true domestication of animals like this is you know like unreal i never would have never would have thought it you know because that i that i'm kind of the same with that i'm very like i i tong feed almost mm -hmm. everything well especially my carpets all my carpet yeah. pythons i are, are tong fed for sure and yeah. i've gotten serious into colubrids lately i have a lot a lot of different colubrids now and i got them uh got a lot from you know one guy specifically and i've had a few animals that wouldn't eat from tongs and it drove me insane and this dude was like just drop it in there dude and it doesn't like what do you yeah. mean just drop awesome. in there he's like just drop it, in and eat it he's like they'll come up and eat it it's fine he's See, like i'm so used to doing that, that yeah he's like, like i drop I feed do it all the time so to me it's kind of funny think, dude, for me for me it's, it's so, unnatural yeah it's very <laughs> unnatural i hate it man like but i'm also trying to get used to it because it is easier it's super quick oh, yeah. easy to blop yeah. move on but on it's, uh, it's very off yeah i use i use lids for plates and just drop them on there and like it it kills me, but it works. Like you just drive. So now I'm drop feeding pretty much everything. Makes feet in a breeze, man. You burn yeah. through them. But for me, I've got 140, 150 snakes. Yeah. All right. So whenever <laughs> I see them take that food, I know it's pretty much good, right? It's done. Right. You don't but have to go back and check it. Next day, I got to win each morning, pull them out, check stuff, you know, and go whole right. through. And what you're fearing is that snake that has picked it up and then brought it to the back of the cage and then put it underneath the paper. Yeah, yeah, forgot right. about it, and then you're like, ah, uh, like two days later, you're like, all right, you just know, yeah. yeah, you walk into your you're like, room, and you're like yep, something's here. dead, <laughs> like something's been rotten. All right, and so I there's pros and cons. I see the pros entirely for that. Yeah, I see the cons as well. Yeah, so. for sure. I've had <laughs> chondras do that where they grab it and wrap it, and then I think that they're gonna eat it, and I come back 
like a day or so later and find out that they had dropped it in the very back yep. corner of the tub and i'm like thanks a lot dude. well that's dude, what you, so and you freeze mm -hmm. right and then you sit there for a little bit and you gradually move your hand over <laughs> you know it, it's a i've done it with with corrales a lot i've done it with both right so you know growing up growing up in ireland in the uk you don't feed live so right your babies are born you feed defrost from day one so it doesn't matter with boas or corn snakes and i i used to produce 300 corn snakes a year it's all defrost you know so you're sitting there you got that whole like hold it take it freeze you know your nights were a nightmare they were just paused by just waiting yeah okay and then you had that point where it was like okay it's time to close the rack the tub yeah and, then, <laughs> and you thought it was just about right and you closed it and you looked and then they just released it and regurged and you're like oh for god's sake corn snake yeah. it's even worse when you gotta pee really bad yeah you know, <laughs> right. like that animal <laughs> started eating and you know as soon as you move it's over and all that work you just spent 20 minutes doing that's whenever you hold the beer bottle right? you know, that's whenever you hold that bottle beside you <laughs> yeah <laughs> What's i always more? like for for me and for me in those situations i always wait i will wait till they get at least over the head did That's they get it. over the head or to the mid body? It's not as easy for them to flail off of it. You know, so, if they can just like flail off of it, then I'm going to leave them. But if yeah, once they get, get like halfway down, you can just. Yeah, that's exactly right. The shoulders, once you get the shoulders, you're pretty safe, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. The, teeth, the, teeth are too, the teeth are too locked in. They can't just flail off of it. They're too committed at that point. We, we have it easy here with the ability to feed live food, you know? I don't easy. like feeding live, man. I really don't. I do it if I have to. I don't. I, I rarely feel live. So with boas, with baby boas and pythons, I feed maybe the first three meals I feed live simply because I might have 50 or 60 of them. And it's easy just to say, right, boom, 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 all done. Right. But once you get to that, then it's defrost. They just kick in straight away. Right. You know, so it's not, it's not a case of, uh, it's more of a case of just trying to, minimize the amount of work that i've got to do you know right yeah for sure so what happens over there if you feed live and someone finds out about it and you like, yeah, i don't know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> who reports you i don't know i don't think so i don't think i, I mean can you even get live feeders there's probably an well, market. i'm you sure there's somebody there. but probably there's people that breed them like back in Ireland. i bred my own rats and mice you know right um but uh, I'm sure people, but not in the same way that people do it here, you know, because realistically, you know, like we have a local um, rodent breeder um, and, uh, and she breeds a lot of rodents, you know, and she offers defrost, but most people buy live. Um, so, you know, every summer I hit her up for whatever I need for, for litters that are born. Mm -hmm. But then it, it comes to... September and I'm like, all right, don't need any more because I buy all my rodents from Cold Leather Cafe, mm -hmm. so I get all my stuff from them. So then I sw everything switches to defrost, and then we, we just go from there. So uh, I see this local breeder maybe you know a couple of times every year. So yeah, but in the UK, yeah, it's everybody starts defrost. It's kind of weird. Like I think about it, like I all the litters of boas that I produced, all the Amazon tree I produced maybe back in Ireland maybe twenty five litters of Amazon tree boas True. every single one on defrost never alive never no baby was ever born ne no baby was ever fed live I've, always, never, 
always defrost. I've never had to feed uh, a carpet live food. I've always no, it's I'm starting on frozen yeah. It's part of the domestication process, right? Yeah. You know, it makes things easier. And the way we select animals uh, for our next lineage is what we hold back and breed. You know, we want to we want to keep the best feeders and so on, um, and it just makes sense. I also find it funny that like I have I have captive animals that I have one I have one albino Florida uh, pine in particular that's real weird about frozen thawed anything live she'll destroy but frozen thawed mice she's not about I found out she's okay with frozen thawed rats I had to huh. slam a frozen thawed rat the other day but she won't even look at a frozen yeah. thawed mouse it's weird <laughs> but a live but, mouse she'll destroy it right away they can be um, weird. I had a, I had a maybe 17, 16, 17, 18 years ago, I had a yellow belly ball python. Mm -hmm. So imagine what they were worth 17 years ago, right? And this thing would only eat small black rats. <laughs> Sorry, small black mice. Yeah, not, black not ones black in particular. Mice, not gray mice, not anything. Small yeah. black mice. It, it was a yep. terrible, it was just the most awful thing on the planet, you know? So yeah, they can, they can be fussy. I, I don't know why, um, because some animals are just, they'll take whatever they can get, but some of them are really fussy about color or about pattern or about uh, temperature, you know? Um, yeah, they're, it makes you realize that they're not as dumb as maybe we think we, right. They are, right? They're very selective. We were, but it's also, we were talking I to do. Someone about, I don't remember who it was, but like the theory of, is it that these live, or I guess even frozen for that matter, depending on how long they've been frozen, but do they have the smell of the adult mice? And that's what sort of, especially with younger snakes, is that sort of what sort of makes them cautious about eating? Cause they think that maybe there's an adult mouse that could be a potential threat. Well, and so they smell the urates or the urine and stuff on, on that. And maybe that's what's caused the problem. That's why washing pinkies works so well. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. I don't know if, if that's actually what's happening, but it I makes sense in a way that if we were thinking about wild caught animals, mm -hmm. but we're talking about captive lineage animals that are multiple generation captive lineage animals, right? So they, you know, there's that threat is is not there. Um, these animals eat defrosted pink mice from day one, right? You think about what, what are corn snakes normally eating in the wild? Probably lizards, right? Sometimes probably insects, mm -hmm. you know? Um, why they eat washed pinks over... Yeah, what, what the smell of dawn for whatever reason just doesn't... It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But I think part of it is, well, I suppose, you know, I think we can probably test it very easily. A... a U.S. rodent, um, the likelihood that they're going to meet a U.S. pink mouse is very slim. And the smell of that is going to be very different than a Asian pink rodent that we are producing and feeding them, right? So the mice mm -hmm. them are not are not U.S.-based rodents. They're, they're Asian rodents, and they probably smell very different. Um, so uh, there's probably that difference there, you know. Yeah, I guess diet would affect that the smell of that as well. Oh, totally. Yeah, there's many, many different things that will affect smell. Yeah. But yeah. I also find it, you know, funny because what I was getting at with that is like we have these, like you know, take that albino pine for example. Like it's a very captively bred animal, very picky. But I have I've had two completely wild caught rat snakes 
take frozen thawed yeah. mm-hmm. dropped right in all right the, away no problem i have yeah. no you know, hesitation no hesitation they yeah. wouldn't take off tongs but i just dropped in there with them gone the next day both of them yeah i think that ties into the idea that many of these animals will be carrying mm-hmm. you know you look at the work done on um, so i had a postdoctoral researcher working in my lab that worked on um on uh, brunt tree snakes in guam mm-hmm. and uh, uh buega uh, irregularis and they they eat any carrion they can find anything dropped on the ground in the trees they eat um you look at some of the work done on crotalus on on rattlesnakes they eat even decomposing rodents roadkill so i think many of these animals will eat it you know in the wild they'll they'll they have no problem with eating that kind of stuff. So if you drop it in the cage and you walk away, many of them will do it. You know, it's, it's just a, it is what it is. You know, right. I actually, I food. actually had a guy, um, this was years, years ago. Was, you know, when I first started keeping and buying bulk rodents, you know, I had a couple of snakes, but I started buying enough to keep for a while. And I asked the guy I was buying from at a show, I was like, you know, how long can they last, you know, before they get freezer burned? He's like, you know, they get freezer burned anywhere from eight months to a year. He's like, but even after that, he's like, snakes eat all kinds of dead decomposing oh, stuff in the wild. He's like, so a little freezer burn isn't yeah. going to hurt your rodents. He's like, even if they're freezer burned, like your snakes aren't going to care. They're gonna it's not that big of a deal. You'd be shocked what they eat in the wild. Yeah. You know, and I always thought about that, but I've, I'm always weird about freezer burned animals, like free freezer burned feeders. But at the same time, it's like if they eat that kind of nasty stuff in the wild, you know, that's dead and been dead and decomposing, like, is it really that big of a deal? Well, what, they, what, if- what's the freezer burn doing? Right. It's affecting the external layer, right? It's making a little, it's toughening it up a little bit. It's kind of making it a little bit nasty. But what's it doing to the internal stuff, you know? Right. I have no problem feeding animals. Uh, rodents that have been right. So I buy all my stuff from Coppola the Cafe, mm-hmm. and there's been times where it's been delayed by a day, and it arrives and it's, it's a little bit softer than it should be. Yeah, throw yeah. it in the freezer. You know, and over the next two months, you know, you take them out, they look a little bit worse than they should have done. You know, yeah. <laughs> makes feed fine, and they don't have a problem with it. Yeah. Now, um, I don't. I don't have a problem with that. You know, there's there's always that thought of what's the nutritional loss and what's the but the animals are growing. They're healthy. They're not showing any kind of issues. Mm-hmm. You know, if they were, then I'd think differently. But I, I do agree with you. You know, but but sometimes what's amazing about some of these things is you could take a newborn, you know, pink mouse, and give it to an animal, and it doesn't take it. You can freeze it, kill it, freeze it, defrost it, let it rot for a day and a half, and then give it back to the snake, and it'll eat it fine. <laughs> yeah that, that um, little male hog i had for some yeah. reason when he ate if that thing sat there for a day it'd be gone but he wouldn't touch it for at least 24 yeah. hours these things are just like what yeah, what's, what's that cue you know it, it's it's absurd you know like i just goofy you know like i hear all these people talking about corrales prebo as being problematic feeders in all my litters of, of of amazons i've never had one where i've had to feed live in my litters of emeralds, I've never had one where I've had to feed live. They're all been straightforward, really easy feeders. You just feed, heat them up warm and, and, and offer them, and they're straightforward. You know, everything's different, I suppose. But I have a very specific process for carpets. Like, I don't try 
Like, I don't try just straight up frozen thawed as is like from the get go. Like my the very first meal I offer carpets is, you know, specifically a fuzzy, very dried off. And then I rip the nose of of the mouse. And that mm -hmm. has worked for me every time for every carpet I've produced. And you right? I haven't produced that you much. No, that, no, that's tong feeding. Tong feeding? Mm -hmm. Yep tongue feeding and that's the first meal i offer i don't try anything different with it or just like a wet fuzzy i dry it off completely and i rip the nose and so what are you uh, what uh what locality what are you working with uh darwin's or uh pop ones pop ones yeah okay yeah yep that's cool yeah you know they've been multiple generations kept or bred oh yeah for sure <laughs> we're starting to like we still wonder why it's so easy to feed these things. It's it's yep. a process of domestication, you yep. know. It's 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 what it's the process we're going through, you know. Yep. I do have some I do have some far bred stuff and some uh I have a I have one wild caught popwin and a couple farm mm -hmm. breads and a couple F ones. Mm -hmm. So I do have some early and beginning That's generations, cool. but for sure. Yeah, they're awesome. So, yeah. I, I like them a lot. I've got um I've got some Darwins. Uh, and I, I think they're phenomenal animals, you know. Yeah, yeah, really cool animals. Well, on the on the subject of food, what's up with the? I'm I'm curious what your take is on the the regurge thing with with northern emeralds. Uh, well, what we know about it. Um, so I've been keeping northern emeralds for about 20, 25, 27 years, and um, what we know over that time is that. Um, the big driver for it is avian chlamydia. Okay. Oh, wow. So um, with importers or exporters in Central America, um, it's the same people that are exporting reptiles that are exporting birds and mammals and this and that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not as if they have enclosures to say, this is my emerald tree bull cage, and this is my Amazon tree bull cage, and this is my whatever parrot cage. It's whatever cage is open, they put animals in, and then they're exported. So there's the risk of, of contamination, whereas in the wild, <clears throat> animals, they might not come into contact with you with each other. So therefore, you know, they're not going to have that risk. So, um, and then there's the, the, the thing that um, animals are there for a couple of weeks, and maybe a bird dies, and they feed it to an emerald or whatever, mm -hmm. right? So there's this avian chlamydia is the thing that has spread through emeralds via exporters into the Kappa situation. And it's, it spreads like wildfire. It's pretty nasty. <clears throat> and we don't have a cure for it. But what it does is it causes regurgitation. And with that regurgitation causes a thickening of the stomach lining. And with, mm -hmm. the, with the stomach lining, we lose the ability to produce gastric juices that the life for digestion. So with that thickening and the pr prevention of pr production of gastric juices, it means they don't digest their food, their next meal. So we wait for two weeks, we give it again, and they produce some more gastric juices, but not enough, and they regurge that, and some more thickening, and so on. And it's kind of, it goes from there. So um, if, they, if they have this avian chlamydia, can they not ever eat food? Done. like period and no yeah. matter how small yeah we don't have yeah so you can give really wow. small meals and they'll survive 
but they're not reproducing. They're they're just about hanging on. You know, how can a large, how can a five foot emerald tree boa survive on a hopper mice? You know, every two weeks, it's not going to work. Okay, I gotcha. So yeah. it has to, it would have to be that minimal it's in not, order to eat. Yeah. So all these people that are like, wow. oh, it's not regurging anymore. It's feeding on a hopper mice. My um, adult uh, emerald tree boa females eat adult rats, medium to adult rats. Whereas people that have got animals that got regurgitation syndrome are feeding them hopper mice. That's a big difference, right? You know, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a huge it's difference. It's not happening. You know? And sadly, this has been gone for years. But it's not it's not something sadly that people can fix in captivity. You know, they 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 buy them these cheap imports and they think they can fix them or they're healthy and, and they just can't. And it's rare that they can't. There's a handful of people that I trust in the importer kind of market in the US mm -hmm. um, that I would recommend to people. Um, and there's a lot of people I don't recommend at all. Um, and, it, and it takes time. Yeah. And, and also, even if they get them in, the good people, they might get from an importer that is not good. And then it's all, it's done, you know? So it's just a total crapshoot. So my recommendation is you spend the money and you buy capital bread. Mm -hmm. it's not cheap you know but you know what you're not gonna have a problem with it you spend 1500 bucks on a cap of bread baby emerald tree boa you're not gonna have a problem with it at all it's gonna be fantastic you spend That's 325 bucks at a rep on an emerald tree boa to show you're probably gonna have a lot of problems with it so. mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's not something probiotics can no. can help with or anything like that. Maybe in chlamydia. So how do you treat that? That's the big deal. I don't know. I've never had chlamydia. Mm -hmm. Jake, have you had chlamydia? Nope. Human or avian? Come on, be honest. <laughs> I mean, I had a real <laughs> avian chlamydia is kind of wild. I'll just let you yeah. know. Yeah so, yeah. so for that, you know, it's been known for years. So the fact that we don't have a cure for it is you know, it's pretty telling, right? So we don't know how to treat it. Mm -hmm. So um, the day that we do know how to treat it will be a very different story, right? But right. Uh, right now, we don't know. Does it affect other species in that genus? Because I've never heard of Amazons or... Yeah, this is honestly the first time I'm Amazons don't. Uh, Amazons are the corn snakes of the corrals world, but annulated have a terrible uh, lineage of regurgitation syndrome. Um, and but but that that might be a lineage thing driven by interbreeding. Um, all the all the annulators that I have are great, but there's a European lineage that has problems with regurgitation, and some in the U.S. Yeah, but I, I don't know if it's avian chlamydia related or if it's something if it's like an inbreeding line issue, like metabol metabolically driven through the, through inbreeding. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So what do you work with the most as far as Corallus? Like what's been the sort of the bigger, what have you kept the most of over the years in terms of those? Uh, over the years was probably Hortolanus. Um, I had had a lot of those. I produced maybe 25, 30 liters of, Am of Amazons. <clears throat> um, but nowadays I work mainly with um, Caninus, Northern, Northern Emeralds, and uh, Russian Bergeri. So I've got, um, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe 18 or 20 Northern Emeralds, capital bred, some, some wild caught Northern Emeralds. And I've got probably about, I don't know, 30, 
30 Ruschenbergerai, uh, which are uh, Costa Rican, Venezuelan, and then uh, Trinidad, which is mm -hmm. the big one that we work with. And then I've got Corrales Grenadensis, which is the Granada, ba Granada Bank, um, uh, tree boas. I've got annulatus. I've got some hybrids between Amazon emeralds. <clears throat> I've got Senzinia, mm -hmm. you know, so I got a bunch of different stuff. Yeah. All together, I've got about 150 snakes. Uh, mainly well, boas. Speaking of. Getting into Trinidad itself, Casey Cannon had a question. Mm -hmm. He's uh, he said, "What do you know about Corallus Cropeni and getting Ruschenbergeri out of Trinidad?" Is well, Trinidad I know a lot about Trinidad. <laughs> we uh, we have we 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 brought uh, Trinidad Ruschenbergeri out of Trinidad a couple of years ago, uh, and we're working with the um, Trinidad government. We we brought uh, ten animals out of Trinidad. Um, with the permission of the Trinidad government, which took a lot of work. Part of it is that we are, um, we're sequencing the, the Rischenbergeri genome. And we're, um, we're looking at a more conservation based work. So uh, the animals that we've got, the 10 that we've got were collected across the island and then we're breeding them. Um, and then we're creating a phylo a, a, um, a, a stud book Mm -hmm. Well, we can say, right, we're breeding A with B and A with C to make these very unrelated animals um, to then supply to zoos and conservation projects. So, for example, we'll be sending some to um, my buddy Ari Flagels uh, and Kessel Dwyer's, the mm -hmm. uh, Ripplandia in, in Texas. We'll be sending some down there. We'll be sending some to all these different zoos across the U.S. and so on and across the world um, to have uh, true um, uh Trinidad Ruschenbergeri, which are, there's none, right? I think we may own, uh, in the US, we may own the only group, my friend and I that brought these in, uh, might have the only group in the world that are known in captivity uh, outside zoos. Um, and they're, they're incredible animals. Um, so um, that was a lot of work. It, it's not something you just turn around to the Trinidad government, right. can I have some? You know, it takes a lot of work and I'm, I'm investing uh, thousands and thousands of dollars from my lab to sequence their genome and to create this stud book. And it's something that I'm also doing with, with Bolin's pythons, for example, uh, with Ari and a couple of other people and, and, and Keith McPeak, friends of mine. Yep. I'm, I'm personally investing money to generate these stud books uh, that we can use long term for once we're breeding once we're able to breed, we can start deciding how do we cross animals? How do we swap lineages and mm -hmm. so forth? So, yeah. Trying to give it the most most distance, you know, let it- right. We don't want inbreeding, we want, we want right. outbreeding. But right. yeah, to go back to, to Casey's question, it, it was a massive amount of work. Relation to Krupani, um, that's something that I don't think we'll ever be able to, um, I can't imagine in my lifetime that we'll ever be able to bring into captivity in any kind of number, right? So I know I've, I've got friends in Sao Paulo um, mm -hmm. that have had pair, that have had animals in captivity that they caught. So maybe I think between two years ago and now, I think there's been eight animals, seven or eight animals, seven or eight Krupani that have been found. And I've been like, right, you need to keep at least some of these 
in captivity and try and breed them and see what happens. And they haven't done it. They have to, they've released them. Mm-hmm. And I've offered to send over um, radio tracking devices to implant. Um, and they haven't been, they haven't, you know, cause they, they, they just don't know how to do it, uh, right. which kind of sucks. That's something that, Oh man, I'd love to see that happen because Kirpani are an interesting animal. Yeah, I mean, when you look at them just from the physical standpoint compared to, you know, uh, Amazons and the other stuff, they're built different. Their scalation is, is well, well, pretty well, think about it. So let me try and let me try and think about this in terms of phylogenetic trees. Right. So you've got Annulatus and then you've got Caninus and Batesi, right? Mm-hmm. And then you got this big Danita split and then you've got Ruschenbergeri. Ancropani around that region, and then you got Hortolanus, Grenadensis, and so on. So they fall into the Ruschenbergeri kind of cluster, right? Ruschenbergeri with big scales, mm-hmm. kind of big heads, big animals, and they fall into that kind of group. And um, but yeah, really interesting animals. You know, I, I'd love to see them in the flesh. Love to, and I, I don't think I ever will. But um, amazing, just amazing. The fact that we're actually they're finding them again is just amazing. Mm-hmm. But the sad thing about it is they're in this such small pocket of land that is being impacted by urbanization that yeah. they're done. You know, they're our dreams that they might be persisting and might, you know, we might see them. I, I think it's. I don't think so. You know, I think we're. I think we are as people are seeing the last. Kripani that are probably going to be fine in the next 20 years, you know? They're, yeah, they're, I mean, they're already incredibly rare. Yeah. Even for the yeah, people that are living there in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible. It's just sad, you know? And the fact that they still get killed uh, for other reasons, you know? Snakes are snakes, so they kill them, you know? Mm-hmm. Bad stuff, you know? But, yeah, there you go. Terrible. But um, to go back to Casey's question, Trinidad's are not easy to get from from Trinidad, but we have them, and they're pretty amazing. You know? yeah. Why do you think Roosh and Burgeri aren't as like those have historically in the hobby never been brought in in any sort of mass numbers? It seems like they've never been kept on any large scale in comparison to the Amazons. What's your well, thoughts on why that was the why that's been the case? I think it's probably numbers. I think it's availability. So early on. Um, you know, uh, in the 70s, when you heard of Cook's Tree Boas, um, which is what the big name was for them all, yeah. they would have really encompassed Kukai, Grenadensis, Hortlanus, Ruschenbergeri. So Trinidad's were brought in then. So they would have, they were all just one big group mm-hmm. um, and sold as such. Um, things changed in the... Um, in the 90s, whenever things became with CITES being much more restrictive, um, and we didn't, we, we were no longer getting Kukai and Grenadensis. We got Hortolanus very readily because of the range, right? Uh, you look at a map, Hortolanus covers a massive range in terms yeah. of, you know, Richenberger, I don't, uh, Grenadensis don't, Kukai don't. They were all Antilles, Adelaide, and so on. Um, I think that was the issue. I think it was just range restriction because of, um, because of um, CITES restrictions. Um, and also, um, people weren't thinking about breeding localities at that point. So I've been hunting uh, Ruschenbergeri for about 25 years. And um, 
even back in Ireland, I was trying to find them, and I I, I located some in the U.S. Uh, and they were all all Trinidad Tribo was that were imported, and it never worked out, you know. Yeah. And I I, I thought I honestly thought like I I did a podcast with um, Eric and Owen um, on the um, Morelia Python Radio one a couple of years ago, and and you know they they come up with this question at the end, you know what would you want if you could ever? And I said Trinidad Tribo was. I never ever thought we'd see them, and uh, and amazingly, with this work that I've done with with, with Jeff on Trinidad, we got them. <laughs> it's just that's like incredible. that's incredible, man. You know, yeah, that, that country doesn't export anything wildlife wise, and we got ten, and we we might be getting stuff from Tobago, and it's like, uh, and it's mind blowing. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. I'm still like literally, I walk into my room every day, and I'm like, if there was nothing else. This is all I want, you know, and we have them. It's weird. Like I walked into my room and I've got green sands in here and I've got Dunn's pythons and I've got Trinidad tree boas. And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> this is that's rare shit, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, no, I need Krupani now, of course, you know, <laughs> it's not I, happening. You know, <laughs> what about Blomber guy? Good question. So we're Those doing are cool that. looking, and that's one that a lot of people don't. I don't think. Know yeah, but is it real? That's the question. Is so it real? We're doing work on that um, genetic. We're doing a lot of work on on the genetics of Corallus in my lab, just for fun. So my lab is all about urban evolution. How do organisms adapt and evolve in urban settings? We use mm -hmm. we, we sequence genomes, right? But as my kind of side projects, I do all the snake work. So all the parthenogenesis of snakes, all my side projects, you know, I cover all the, I pay for all that stuff. The stuff we're doing for Nick Mutton's Carpet Python book, I'm paying for. The stuff we're doing for all the amethystine python work is gonna change amethystine pythons mm -hmm. forever, I'm paying for, you know? But it's, um, that's all hobby research, you know, that's all kind of stuff to the side. So we're doing work on Corallus with Kessel Dwyer and um, Kessel and Ari Flagel and, uh, well, but what's Kessel Dwyer really? And we're working on this various phylogeny of Corallus and getting true Blomberga is hard. And the Blomberga that we've got has not proven to be genetically distinct from, um, from, um, the corallus that are closely related to it. So it might just be a locality thing. But again, you know, and the sad thing is that the Bloomberg-i that are in museum collections are all formal and fixed and you can't get DNA from them easily mm -hmm. in the library, you know? So um, it's, it's proven to be problematic. But, you know, we also look at Grenadensis and Kukai um, and even Hormones. On, on the take pictures of them right now. Yeah, those yeah. ones on the on the on the in West Indies. Genetically, there's not a lot of difference between them. That's what I've always wondered, though, with the, with Grenadensis and uh, the Cook Eyes. Yeah, like yeah how, they're, how, they're not very distinct. But not in for, terms of those in relation to like Amazons, they're more on, but they're in that group. Right. Yeah. So they're close, um, but they're not—they're uh, not massively distinct. But 
those two together are very closely related. And, uh, and, you know, I think the way we have to think about it is what's the, what's the likelihood that those islands are then going to become more distinct and therefore result in speciation. And I think that's where, mm -hmm. why, why we, why we still have them as Grenadensis and Kukai and so on, because the islands aren't going to come back together again. If anything, they're going to spread further apart and therefore the likelihood of reintroduction yeah. between them is very slim, you know? So, yeah, but they're cool. Yeah. They're, I've, I've got never Grenadensis. seen pictures of, of both of them. Yeah. I've got Grenadensis here. I've got I've a bunch seen of pictures of them as a kid. Yeah. My Grenadensis, they're weird. They're, they're color they're pattern wise. They're not at all like uh, Hortlanus. They're cool. They're really neat. But they're not at all like uh, Hortlanus. You know, they got different. They're more green and pink, and uh, yeah, they're they're all, you know the the patterns on the sides are more like um, almost like annulated. But yeah, they're they're just very different. Cool animals. Yeah, I just always wondered how legit they were in comparison to some of that stuff. Because as a kid, seeing ads on classifieds for them, I want to say they were probably Amazon's just listed as something else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Kickstreebo was. You know, they they were always Amazons. You know, so yeah, yeah. The you can tell that the ones that had true legit cooks uh, are um, are Grenadensis, and there's only like one or two people, and uh, even then they were kind of sketchy. So um, all the ones that advertised cooks, it was just it was used as a common name mm -hmm. for years. Cooks Trebo was Amazon Trebo was Garden Trebo was were all just like, interchangeable names. Yeah, yeah. So where do where do Cinzinia fall? Is there of any is there any they're totally different. Sanzinia are um, very basal. They're a very old lineage of, of Boa. They're in fact one of the earliest lineages of Boa. Um, so if we think about a phylogenetic tree, um, pythons split off, Boa split off pythons, and that first split was Sanzinia. Really? So the Madagascan That's boas. so cool, though. Yeah, you had the sense, right? So you had the, the Madagascan boas, mm -hmm. and then and you had the um, the African, the Eriks, the, the the sand boas, that kind of group. Yep. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, but with the Sanzini, it's kind of cool because you know there's a lot of questioning: are they one species or two two species? The genetic work is pretty secure, saying there's voluntary and Madagascariensis, there's two lineages. There's an Eastern and a Western. Mm. But what's cool about the, um, and that's fine, but what's cool is you then have the uh, Ancarantophis, which is the, the, the Boa Mad Madagascariensis, and the Dumerilli. Yep. But it looks like Dumerilli might be actually two species as well. So um, more work needs to be done with those. And it could mm. be a geographically located thing as well. But they're a very old lineage of Boa. And then you had from there you had split off the Erinx, the the the, the uh, African boas, the sand boas, and so on. And then you moved into the new world. You had the um, the rosy boas and so on, and the and the boa imperator. And then you got the Corallus, and then you got the Epicrates, and then you got the Chalybrothrus. You know, so it, it's kind of a cool evolutionary pattern that you got from those. You know, and like within the Corallus, you got as I said, split for Anulatus and uh, Caninus and Batesi, 
and a split for Rüschenbergerei, and then from there a split for Hortelanus, Grandances, mm -hmm. Gun. That's yeah. really cool, man. I don't know what it is about. Oh, I mean, I know what it is, but Sanzinia, as far as bows go, Sanzinia do it for me, man. I see they don't. I, I don't know why. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. I think Sanzinia are some of the coolest freaking snakes out there, man. They're so neat looking. It's the, with those yeah, and the, the, their faces, man. They're so viper like. I think that's it. The face is kind of cool. Like I love my. I've got Easterns. I got green Sanzinia, and I love them. They are out of this world. They're just yeah, they such are cool just animals. Absolutely incredible snakes. Really I was cool. able to handle one, and oh my yeah. god, I was just enamored by them. And they're so rare. Yeah. Like green Tanzania, eastern Tanzania. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go and buy one right now. <laughs> You'll be lucky if you can get one for five thousand dollars. You know, so four thousand dollars. They're absurdly expensive. You know, yeah, they're really cool. I love them. Yeah. How did the as far as breeding the the Russian burger? How do those compare? With the Amazons, you see like major differences in litter yeah. sizes, baby sizes, anything like that. That's a great question. You know, um, they they're no different in breeding, right? So, you know, temperature drops are the same. You know, drop it down to maybe seventy eight at night, eighty four during the day. You know, for three months. But litter sizes are weird. So Hortulanus. Um, I produced litters that were up to 26 babies, 25 babies in a litter mm -hmm. uh, for a, like a six-foot Amazon. For a seven-foot Costa Rican Rischenbergerai, um, and Keith McPeep and I had the same issues. We had females that, um, you know, these are eating adult rats, big mm -hmm. animals. They produce like um, six babies. Wow. And then a slug. And I'm like, wow, holy shit, that's kind of weird. You know, like, this is mm -hmm. a huge, this is not what I expected. And then, like, five days later, dropped like four stillborns and then six more live. What? Yeah. Yeah. These big drops in time. So I had the same thing happen. Keith McPeak had the same thing happen. I think somebody else had the same thing happen. Weirdest, weirdest thing. Um, and for no reason, the animals are in big cages and just very unusual. But that was only the Costa Rican stuff. Our Trinidad stuff just gives birth as normal, you know, it's kind of like drops of babies and that's it. Yeah. Um, but the Costa Rican stuff, I have no idea why. Um, but the most unusual thing for me, yeah. Is it the Costa Ricans or the Venezuelans that have a lot of, I like the ones with a lot of black on them? Um, that's the Venezuelans, oh. much more patterned. Yeah. Well, it's one line of Venezuelan. Um, Venezuelans have a couple of different lineages. Um, and in the U.S., we have both, but only one. Well, no, actually, none of them, none of them are available. Um, but uh, one of them is more patterned than the other. Mm -hmm. I don't have the highly patterned one yet. Um, but um, they um, they act more like the Trinidad tree, but was they're aggressive. They're, well, not the aggressive. Well, they're more testy, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas the Costa Ricans are much just more kind of really laid back and um, uh, less, um, less, I don't want to say confrontational. They're just kind of, like, yeah, they're not temperamental at all. They're pretty cool, you know? Yeah. 
Trinidad has some of those dark ones, and it just when I see pictures of those, man, I get so jealous because those dark. To me, they're like the Jansen Eye of the Trebo world. It's just mm. I like that fade from that lighter to the darker. Mm. And, yeah, uh, those they those are just yeah, they're they're really cool. Uh, and the ones that Nimbus got, um, he's probably got the ones that that are from the original lineage that I've got animals from as well. Um, and they're fun, you know. I don't know how what temperament his are, but mine are just. You know they're they're not appreciative of human interaction. <laughs> so, That's been I'm my like, experience with all the all the Hortulanus I've owned is that they're just yeah. But the thing about Hortulanus are Hortulanus are really floppy, right? They see you and look. Ugh, yeah, it's really. I, <laughs> you know, a Trinidad Triboa is straight to your face. A Venezuelan is straight to your face. A Costa Rican is more. Ugh, you know, they're less <laughs> aggressive, you know. Um, Trinidad's and Venezuelans are, Trinidad's are on point. You know, they, those, and Trinidad's, how I would equate, Trinidad's are like, um, are like uh, uh, scrub pythons. They're like, um, you know, um, maybe Nauta. Heat-seeking heat missiles. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. The Trinidad's are right on point. They're big animals. They're Realistically, seven feet eating adult rats. Wow. You know, they are big animals on point, whereas Hortolanus are at most eating medium rats and kind of floppy. Yeah. Yeah. You ever you ever been tagged by, by any of the bigger caninus? I haven't, no. No, because I've always been careful. In my 27 years of keeping snakes, I've only been bitten seven times or eight times. Wow. Yeah. Because I'm careful. I don't want to be bitten. You know, so I used. I, mean, to, I don't like it, but I sure as hell ain't gonna be the first one to sign up to to go and get nailed by a. No. <laughs> no. no. Thank you. The last thing I want is a a big emerald hitting me. No way. Good God. That's, that's why companies produce snake hooks, and yep. that's why <laughs> snake hooks. So. <laughs> no. What a concept. Yeah, I know. Why would they do that? I don't know. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Columbus. You got any uh, with the hybrids, actually. That was something that I had written down. Um, I think I recall years ago when I, it might, I don't know if it was Heinrich or not that was doing stuff with the hybrids. Or, um, but I think I remember reading something about them having fertility issues. Well, I've been following hybrids for maybe 20, 22 or 23 years. So I've been, you know, corrals has been a big thing for me for a long time. And I've been fascinated by hybrids for many reasons, genetically from, for, for part of that. But that my friend John Martin produced two litters of hybrids. Um, but I remember reading a reptiles magazine. It's probably sitting around here somewhere um, that had. Um, That's uh, probably friend, where I'm, what I'm thinking of. Right. So it was an article. It was, it was an issue that had. It was on Basin Emeralds by Stan Shearis. But there was one or there was two pages by. Um, my buddy, um, my friend um, Dave Parker, that talked about a emerald, a northern emerald that they brought in that gave birth to hybrids. And Dave wrote this article about it. And I was, I was talking to Dave, I don't know, a couple, maybe four weeks ago, five weeks ago about it, six weeks ago about it. And, and it was just an emerald that they brought in. It was gravid, and it produced hybrids. And I just became fascinated by this thing. And, uh, but then, we didn't hear much about how they developed, which was kind of 
weird for me, right? I thought, well, why don't we see, you know, because for me, emeralds change color and all this stuff. It'd be cool to see what these hybrids do. And we, it never happened. We never saw it. So John Martin produced some, and his were out of this world. But they all went through this problematic kind of shedding phase, feeding phase. Hmm. Uh, once you raise the adulthood, proved to be, um, I, I'm not going to say infertile, but he, they bred and they didn't reproduce, or they did, and it was it was minimal fertility. And again, problems. Um, so the ones, you know, when I sit back and think about it all, I think, right, well, what about the ones that Dave Barker had? Well, we saw nothing. And what about the ones that John produced? Well, we don't see much. And here and there, we don't see anything, very minimal stuff. Um, I have some, I have one, and it's ph phenomenal. It's a year old, it sheds great, it eats great, it's a female. Um, uh, and yeah, I don't know if you got, you got Instagram, but I posted some pictures of it today, and it's mm -hmm. out of this world, you know? But that doesn't mean it's gonna change. It, it could change and just totally go downhill, you know? Um, I plan to try and produce some um, in the next couple of years, more for my interest in genetics, you know, and more where I will sequence the genome of them to see what subsets of genes are inherited. But um, yeah, pretty fascinating animals. Are they her are they infertile? I've got no idea. I can't see why they would be. Uh, but I don't know. The one that I've got. And the one that I know of from the litter seem to be doing really well. But do they, they get, act, do they they get, act like yeah. Amazons or do they act? No, like they act like emeralds. They no. they perch like emeralds. They're <laughs> they're nasty little animals. <laughs> 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 uh, but they yeah they just uh, they just act like a like a regular Amazon. They're really cool. Like they're. I've had it for a year, and it's uh, it's changing color. It's amazing. It went from orange to kind of lemon yellow, maybe yellowish. Now it's kind of like a bluish gray. It's really neat. Strange. It's really cool. Of course, probably now it's, it's probably just going to colors that are closer and closer to death. I don't know, but <laughs> it's so far it looks, it looks great. It's really neat. Yeah. I mean, it definitely looks healthy. Like, yeah, look I'm at looking the at the pictures it's, of it right now. And my it, it, God. It, is, it is every two weeks it, it'll take, you know, and it, it does great, you know. So we'll see, you know. Um, the stuff that John had just might have been, uh, you know, a lineage thing. The wild-caught ones, I don't know why. Um, um, I don't know why they died. But this one, you know, I've got one, and uh, Dayton has got one mm -hmm. from HD Aurora. He's got one as well, a sibling. And his seems to be doing fine, you know. He doesn't post much, but you know, I'm not going to hide it. I've said to people like these are known not to be doing well, and therefore I will post stuff to say right, it's doing well or it's not. And if it starts going downhill, I'll I'll post about that. I'll tell you like it's probably having problems shedding or feeding or whatever it would happen. I, I I'll report that, you know. I'm not going to hide that kind of stuff. Why would I? So right. Yeah, this is a desk pet. It's not a right. it's not a breeding project, you know. This is just more curiosity to me than anything. So, uh, Casey was also curious as to how you uh, how you bred emeralds, and then he said, "Ask what's up with the quote unquote new locality that have the white spots on the heads." So new lo new locality is interesting. Um, 
Um, I'm completely I, unfamiliar with that. I have not seen or heard. Yeah, anything. so it's they're just emeralds with white spots in the back of their head. Like, so you know, emeralds have got these big bulbs in the back of their head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Within those bulbs, there's two white spots, one on each side. Um, and the new locality also had maybe more distinct white kind of banding on their backs, you know, as they went down. And people thought they were from a new locality. And, you know, there was all these rumors, oh, they came from the border of this here or the border of that. I've seen enough of them coming in over the years that I think they're just natural variation. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, just like anaconda face. So I keep a bunch of anaconda face where they lack the, the white pattern. They just got, instead of having white pattern, they've just got darker green pattern, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think um, I think it's just a natural variation. Um, I don't believe this new new locality stuff. I think it's just, you know, what is collected is what is collected, you know, and it's I'm sure it's heritable, right? I'm sure the, the white pattern is a heritable trait, but it doesn't mean that it's caught in a new new place. I mean, um, that that's polygenics in, right, exactly. in a nutshell. I mean, that that's exactly yeah. what that, I mean, that was my first thought when he brought it up was, yeah. you know, is that the just a, a random trait and that is can be bred through and out, you know, with polygenics. Right. You know, or, I, think, I think that's it. I think you're exactly it. I think um, if they had have said to me, right, they're all coming from the border of Suriname and then I would have thought, right, it's a locality-based thing. But the fact that I see them coming in from Guyana and Suriname and all that, that kind of stuff, I'm like, you know, I think it's just a natural standing variation within the. Right. So what I mean by that is, there's enough genetic variation in the population that every so often it pops up, right? Yeah. So we see the white eye spot, and we don't, and it's heritable, and that's fine, but it's maybe a recessive thing. I don't know, but it pops up and pops on. So you know, like I remember in the last couple of years, there was on Kingsnake.com. There was a, a breeder selling some a baby or two from a captive breeding from a new locality animal that didn't have eye spots, but the parent was an eye spot, a new locality. And I said, "Well, um, talking to people, they were asking me my advice." And I said, "Well, it could be a, it could be a recessive trait, but we don't know, or it could be a polygenic trait, and we got no idea." You know, so clearly but it's not a a. a a dominant trait that is inherited from the parent. So, and even if that's the case, though, I would have a problem with somebody labeling it as a new locality because poly polygenic morphs. You know, if it's if it's a genetic thing, that's completely different from it being a different locality. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's I, I hate when people label things as that when it's yeah. it's, I, it's, it's point. not, you know, like it like hey, just say what it is, you know. It's I agree, not, yeah. Totally. You know, it's either a polygenic trait, you know, dominant, co-dominant, whatever, but that's I think the thing is we just don't know. We just don't know, so don't label right. it. That's exactly it. It's the exactly. mystical <laughs> El Dorado El Condro. Like this is one of those that yeah. has the white spots. Like you know, we don't know what it is, but it's it has the same it. with basins, right? You have high white basins, right? Exactly. Sadly, it's not for people breeding emeralds um, that can really address that. More people are breeding basins than northerns, um, so therefore we can't really turn around and say, "Oh yeah, we we've line bred this." trait and therefore we've got it you know we select before eye spots or not right. we don't see them you know so I, i'm working on on stuff not eye spots but i'm working on line breeding northerns for blue or yellow right uh, but it, you know it, what does it take between each generation is five years <laughs> it's mm -hmm. 
43, 44. I'll be, you know, 64 but before I really see any kind of results from it, you know? Where's yeah. the disconnect in breeding Northerns versus Basins? Like, what's the... I don't know. I, I think Northerns are wonderful. I mean, what was how's your experience been with breeding Northerns? Are they just more com are they just more commonly imported than? Uh, I don't keep, I don't keep basins, um, but Northerns are not hard to breed. I bred them in Tupperware. I, I bred them in Rubbermaids. I'm just kind of surprised because I mean that is we see those on tables and online all the time. Like they're imported yeah. in serious numbers, but I don't see anybody ever. I don't think people put the effort in. You know, so Vine, uh, um, uh, my first, the times that I bred them, I, I literally bred them in uh, Tupperware containers. You know, the, what is that, like two foot by 18 yeah. inch, 18 inch. Mm -hmm. um, and they uh, put them together, they bred. I think it's all about the health of the animal. So my females were eating medium to large rats. Um, Males were eating small to medium rats once a month. Uh, that was it. Literally, you know, people asking, "What did you do?" And I said, "I did nothing. I literally <laughs> put them together on December first, <laughs> and uh, I just watched them, you know. Um, and they bred, and I watched for the female ovulating. Once the female ovulated, I waited a couple of weeks. And they re removed the male, and just that was it. You know, it's, it's not just... hard." People think this process is a difficult process. It's not difficult. If you've got healthy animals, it's not difficult. If you buy two wild-caught animals off a table at a Repticon show, the likelihood you're going to breed them is pretty slim. Right. But if you've got two healthy animals that are in captivity for a long period of time um, and you put them together, um, it's probably a good chance they're going to breed. You think it's just an acclimation thing with those imported yeah, animals? Totally, yeah. They're not hard to breed. They're easy to breed. They're t really emerald tree boas are not hard to keep. I've got twenty of them here, and they're the easiest animal that I've got. You feed them once a month, you clean them once a month. They're the easiest animal to keep. The, you the ever kept chondros though? Yeah, I have. <laughs> I, used have a, I used to. I used to keep arrow chondros. They were easy as well. Um, they're just boring. Uh, Condors are just fine, really, and quite ugly. What? They're just boring. Yeah. I mean, I don't. There it is. God. Condors are boring and ugly, and um, but but emeralds are, but all all the arboreals are really simple. Don't overfeed them. Don't overfeed them. Clean them. Keep them keep them hydrated. There you go. You got healthy animals. Yeah, but arrows, they go hand in hand. Like I've attempted to, at some point. Like, are awful. <laughs> I keep telling myself I'm going to get some some northerns at some point <laughs> and try them out, but I don't mm. know when that'll happen. I don't they're know. great. Northerns are one. The head shape's wonderful. You know, they're when they're good, healthy animals are fantastic. They're you impressive know, animals. Yeah, they're wonderful. You know, you look at you look at Very like I love I love chondros. But they are born as these, these little scrawny little worms, you know, and they're with these little fish. You look at a newborn baby emerald, it's, it's kind of like it's got beef to it. It's kind of like, a, you know, yeah. I'm going to fucking survive this world. Emerald, <laughs> green trees, you're like, well, you might survive or you won't. Let's roll some dice. Emeralds are like, emeralds are like, fuck you guys. I'm here. You know, I will give you that. Year. 
Yeah. I have heard on multiple occasions that, that baby emeralds yeah. are light years easier to get going than condors. Yeah, right. Yeah, my my baby emeralds start on defrost small mice or uh, defrost hopper mice, you know, or or fuzzy mice. They're, they're awesome. Yeah. What's the average litter size on those things? For mine, it's been like six to nine. Yeah, six to nine for for emeralds for Amazons. Um, twelve to twenty-seven. And would you consider Amazons to be like truly polygenic? Uh, no, no, there's, uh, it's, there's, it's hair, there's heritability to it. Um, people said the same thing about Cresteds. And when I was breeding Cresteds, like, yeah, you're only getting two eggs at a time. But if you looked at those eggs, like those babies, if they had laid a clutch of 20, you'd still see chunks oh, that are like right. this look, this look, this yeah, look. There's, like, there's definitely heritability to it. Um, yeah. And in fact, the person you should talk to about that is Nick Mutton. Um, Nick. And I have talked about this for years and years. In fact, Nick and I and a couple of friends are going to be writing um, the more, sorry, not the more, the complete Treboa book is what we're planning to write over the next couple of years. Hell yeah. And it will, it, this will be included in it, um, the heritability of color in, um, in, uh, in Hortolanus. It's, it's a very simple pattern that we can follow. Um, I'm not going to talk about it now, but um, it's not, you know, we used to think about it as being this random polygenic kind of thing. It's mm -hmm. not that at all. Right. Just as we see in many other snake species that we think that was, and we now realize that it's not. Uh, there's definitely heritability. Of course, there's there's patterns to it, you know. So, yeah. There's a little bit more complex than we thought they were, mm -hmm. which makes them cool. But the other thing is, it's pretty sad that we're all, like, selecting for reds, right? Reds are cool, but you know what? Bicolors are neat. Pure yeah. yellows are neat. Orange is unique. Garden phase. Are I really like garden cool. phases. I think the garden phases are fantastic. I don't like man. the ones that are like that. I really like the dark There's, ones. There like are some really ugly garden ones. phases, but there are there some are ones. there are some ugly animals. Period of whatever we look at. Yeah, no matter what. Not a chondros. There's a lot of ugly chondros. Ugly chondros don't <laughs> exist. The, the designers are fucking terrible. Whoa! <laughs> Come on. That's that's irrelevant oh, to the objective beauty. I love I love this guy, man. This For Condros, like my new favorite. You're my like Mr. Elcondros, man. <laughs> I love Condros, but for my for me for Condros, if I could get any, it would have been the Yapan Islands from twenty two or twenty three years ago. Paul Harris was a breeder in the UK, UK pythons, and Paul used to be a big breeder of of, of green tree pythons, and he had a line of Yapans. That were, that were, um, forest green, but big splotches of white. Like I mean, like this, like as if they were hit by a paintball of white, down their body, and these were remarkable. Paul used so Paul's known for his his carpet pythons. Yeah, he bred green trees at the Wazoo, and he had these yap hands, and they were amazing. And he stopped breeding green trees, and we no longer see that line. And I keep searching in Europe for them because that's the one that I would love to own because they were just so unique. These big white paintball splotches of white. Every other green tree, I'm like, ah, you know. And the designers do nothing for me. You know, they're like, oh, I've got a, you know, a Rubiac. I'm like, ah, that's great. You know, you got a hybrid. Yeah, that's wonderful. You know, it looks cool, but I'd rather see a really nice Aru or a really nice Biak or a really nice. Um, 
you know, whatever, you know, sarong. I think sarongs are great. They're all awesome. I like the sarongs. They're not all awesome. They're not all. <laughs> I like the sarongs. I regret having you on. I have, I mean, I have, I have Biox that I, that are Biox and I have yeah. some, like the, my lone holdback from my one and only clutch so far. And I love that snake and I have some designer stuff and I have yeah. some other random mix stuff and I love it all. Because you like them doesn't mean you like to love it all. You can like it. <laughs> Me and Casey do call Trebo's El Condros though. How are you doing? Emeralds. That's El Condros. Oh, yeah. Casey sent me an emerald um, a year ago, two years ago. One that he uh, he couldn't get feeding, and he sent it to Keith McPeak, and Keith got a feeding and sent it back. I think Keith, and then sent it back to Casey, and it wouldn't feed. Then then he sent it to uh, <laughs> Gary Scavino, and Gary got a feeding, and he sent it back to to Casey, and it wouldn't feed. Then he yeah, just doesn't like Casey. Yeah, Casey hit me up and said, look, Warren, just take it. And I, I took it. And I was out of the random, like out of the blue. <laughs> and it arrived. <laughs> and literally within four hours, it fed. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but, but I will say this. It's totally tweaked. Uh, it, it doesn't feed like all my other emeralds. It, like it's totally tweaked. So it, there is something wrong with it. It's not a... I think it's just the run of the litter or something. I don't know. There's some issue with it. Neurological, maybe, you know. And uh it's it's a weird like it's it's a weird one, but I thought it was so funny that Gary got a feeding and that Keith got a feeding and 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 I did. And, At some point uh, Casey has to ask himself, maybe it's me. Yeah. <laughs> Casey does all the work with the Brattles and stuff, you know, which is he does. Casey's also you, know, you know, they take a little bit of work, but this one it just didn't do for him, you know. It's kind of funny, you know. But it feeds it, but it's totally tweaked. It's totally tweaked, you know. You touch it and it's it spins and twirls and it, I'm like, all right, here we go. Yeah, that's <laughs> wow. gonna the jag. Yeah. It's all it's what yeah, it's like if you think about an emerald tree bow with that kind of thing that's that's what it, what it is you know and uh yeah i don't know if it's a neurological thing or just a i don't know but it's 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 an animal that will never be bred in my collection but uh one that's certainly a little bit more um enthusiastic about being not normal <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah. nice but still I better than Ian Marcel got some some rushies at one point. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah uh, Ian got his from uh, from Pete. Ah, that was great. Yeah, Ian, yeah Ian got, I remember he had a hell of a time getting at least one of them going. Are they are they traditionally pretty hard to get started compared to yeah, my, the other? I don't know. Mine were easy. Um, mine, um, so like Hortolanus are the easiest animals to get breed to get feeding. You know, defrost hopper mice or defrost pink mice even. They'll take from from day one or two. Ruschenbergerai a little bit more work, but my Ruschenbergerai from the Costa Rica lineage. So Ian's were from um, he, he uh, it was uh, Keith McPeak that bred them and sent them mm -hmm. to Ian. Yep. Um, mine in my litters uh, will not take defrost pink mites, but if I if I wash the mice and then dip them in um, chicken broth, then I'll take them straight away. Hmm. So broth. I had uh, 
I had uh, ordered um, what's the there's a company that does like uh, gecko juice and oh yeah the reptilinks animal juice and frog juice and so I I ordered the three juices and it's like you know like a hundred bucks for the three and before they arrived I uh, I went to my local grocery store at like midnight I was coming back from my lab and I was buying you know just general groceries before I went home. And uh, I was like, oh, chicken broth. Oh, I'll buy that chicken broth and see what that does. And I went home and I had some pink mice defrosted or fluff mice defrosted. And I washed them in Dawn dish soap, dipped them in the hot um, chicken broth and every single freaking Russian burger I took. <laughs> every single one. And I'm thinking, fuck. And, I, and at that point, I looked at my phone and it was like, shipping tracking number for my hundred dollars worth of <laughs> you know like okay go well um, yeah so while well, they're there you know but um yeah they, they i think it's just what yeah maybe how you how you keep them and whatever but my russian burger i've all been really easy to to uh, to get going and my trinidad's are stupidly easy and the, the babies are born bigger mm-hmm. and uh Drop fed hover mice, and they've taken me. unusual, you know. But they're just absurd. Yeah, you drop think- fed too. Yeah, it, it kills me, especially with like bows and pythons. The drop feeding, but you know that, that, that gets me especially. But my, all weird. my other boas, you know. So so I keep a lot of you know. I've got sixty corallus, but I got seventy or eighty boa imperator and boa sigma. None of them ever drop feed. You know, babies, none of them. No. You drop a you drop a hopper or fluff mice in beside them, it's there until you pick it up again. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, it, it's there, no interest. What the hell am I supposed to do with this? So, you know, because what's interesting about it is when we think about it phylogenetically, Corallus and Epicrates are really phylogenetically very close. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's part of that kind of, maybe it's just one of those things, you know? Whereas boas are prior to that, they're basal to that, you know, and um, but they just mine don't do that. You know, I've never really heard of boas that are drop feeders. I've heard of Epicrates doing it, I've heard of Corallus doing it, but it could be a phylogenetic thing. I had a pair of Terahumeras years ago, and I fully regret parting with those. Yeah, I, I had a pair, and I regret as well. As nasty tempered as they were, they were small they, and they were, they were very unpleasant to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> but they were cool. They were cool. They're dark and they're they're kind of really um their patterns really neat. And part of me regrets getting rid of them, but then part of it's just like more of a marketing thing. Mm-hmm. And then I think and part of me is like, well, I just don't want to deal with them again. So why would I even want to worry about that? Because yeah. they, you know, boas are cool. They're, they're so I keep I keep um Sumatran short tails. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my friend uh, Tracy Barker gave me a pair of um, caramel Sumatran short tails. Really cool looking animals. But when they're pissed off, they don't they don't just hiss at you. They bounce off the cage floor. Right. Like they, literally, <laughs> they literally launch themselves off it. Like right. Yeah. They levitate. They jump. Yeah. And the um, the Tarahumaras that I had did the same thing. They, yeah, when they, they man, when they went for it, they were yeah, out for pissed off and just like, fucking jumped. Yep. And I was like, yeah, these are just. And I and after a while, I just thought, you know, yeah, I don't need this stuff. You know, it's 
yeah it's not for me so yeah I just I had a phase where like the the smaller insular speed uh, groups and Nicaraguan boas were I was very I, much into those. I have a very real fascination with those, like the like the dwarf, you know, boas, like the hot yeah, islands. Yeah. I think are fantastic. Yeah. The Nicaraguans, all those small, you know bow constrictors are just like i don't know i think they're fantastic but and that's what i've worked on for most of my um for my life you know for i've been breeding sonoran boas for maybe 27 years mm. and the males are maybe three and a half feet long wow and they eat jumbo mice the small rats and the females are maybe four and a half or five feet long eating large rats you know every maybe once every month wow. and they're wonderful they're just fantastic animals um, and it's from them that I then got into Nicaraguan stuff and, and the Costa Rican stuff that I keep. But they're all they're all dwarf boas. They're they're all no bigger than five feet. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Should, fantastic, you know? should Imperator be split up more? Because well, we, when we, I was heavy into Nicaraguans, everything was Imperator. It didn't matter where it came from, whether it was you know right. Honduras, whatever. Right. And so it always kind of killed me because I like I. You can look at a Nicaraguan. If you look at enough enough bows, you can look at it and tell that it's a it's a Nicaraguan at least. Mm -hmm. I thought you could. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of got look. Yeah, but it but was we, like, yeah. yeah, these are no different than everything else. And so it was like, well, what the hell? Like, why? What difference does it make then? Even though they are clearly different, and so was the other stuff. You know, the the call the K stuff and yeah. Um, well, we split them a number of years ago mm -hmm. um, through genetic work that we did. Um, that a friend of mine, Frank Burbrink, did, um, and a buddy, Graham Reynolds, did. <clears throat> when we combined that whole work and we looked at it, we split them and we split Imperator into two species. Um, so we split them into Imperator, which are on the, um, if we think about a map, um, we think about um, with Mexico, think about the Gulf Coast side, and then into Central America mm -hmm. and, and, and South America. So they were Imperator, and then from South America they went into uh, Constrictor, right. which were right. So very, very different. Hmm. Um, in Mexico, on the Pacific side, um, was a very different looking animal, and a very genetically a very different animal, uh, and we we call that Boa Sigma. So the Sonoran boas, um, and we still need to do more work to determine how much of Mexico uh, range fits into Boa Sigma. Uh, but we call that boa, boa sigma, not not a subspecies, but a full species. Mm -hmm. uh, which was funny for me because, um, you know, for years I was breeding Costa Rican T-positive boas into Sonoran, Mexican Sonoran leopards. And then all of a sudden they became hybrids, right? <laughs> it was no longer crosses. I was now making hybrids. Um, but um, but they, they were a separate species. And I think um, what we didn't do, we didn't test Tarahumara. We didn't we didn't screen um, any of these cloud forests, the, the, the you know the the Sky Island boas. Mm -hmm. We never tested any of those. And I, you know, it's possible they've been isolated for a long time. It's possible that they are at least subspecies, maybe species level di divergence. Um, with the island stuff, we did we we. I was part of a group where we tested Hog Island stuff. Um, we looked at um, maybe Corn Islands. I need to check the work. Um, but they all fit into Imperator. Oh, really? What uh, about Calkers? 
Uh, they were all Imperator. But yeah, that's yeah. surprising. Yeah, yeah, they're just they're just a not that they're not ev evolutionarily they're not long diverged from their mainland. You know. Okay. Yeah, they're cool. They like they look different, right? But that's fine. Or yeah, I mean, just considerably smaller. You know. Just... Yeah, but islands do that. You know, island reptiles can can be smaller. You know, think about what they're eating, right? They're they're mm -hmm. not, there's not a lot of rodents, and they're eating. Uh, generally migratory birds for a short period of time each year. Mm -hmm. So they're small arboreal snakes. Um, whereas mainland animals um, are larger, um, bigger bodied animals that are eating ground dwelling rodents. And I would assume they look different based on, you know, if these are from, you know, different smaller islands and stuff, you know, I assume that that different look comes from just the geography geographical location right that's part of it it's, it's part of what animals washed up on that island so if we took a say we had a box of 50 boas and we said three of them are going to each of 10 islands hmm. they're all different which three go to which island just randomly right. so the hog islands get the light ones and the corn islands get this this one and the the um you know uh cake copper k's get a slightly anarchistic one and so on it's totally random that process right which ones survive could totally relate to um the environmental conditions so with uh the chaos chaos coquinas islands the hog island boas very sandy the light colored boas survived the dark right. ones right uh, whereas um copper k tends to be darker and you get the darker animals that survive um uh so it's all natural selection at that point um and, and all small number of founders leading to the foundation of populations. And then if you look at them even further, um, we can take hog islands, we can take hog okay, we can take West key snakes, we can take um, all these other island boas and look at their look at their head structure and they're all different. And, and it's all related to what they eat. Are they a lizard feeder or a bird feeder or a rep or a, or a snake or a, um, um, mammal feeder? changes the shape of their face it's kind right. of cool stuff so right. um, mm -hmm. really cool really cool in terms of evolution they're really neat to watch that whole process yeah yeah mm. i like them a lot yeah i love island boas love them and if i didn't have as many corrales i'd have much more island boas and i've got a lot i've got 70. They that's fantastic, man. I don't I don't know what it is about the island bows that have always fascinated fascinated me. Ever since I was young. They don't get massive. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, me yeah, but like for me, like I like I like the bigger snakes. I don't, I don't like know, I don't like twelve to fifteen foot snakes. I like man that likes little snakes. I do <clears> like, you know, your six to you know, eight, nine foot snakes. Like, I don't know. There's something about them that fascinate me. I, I don't, don't even want them. I want the four to five feet at most. Right, exactly. You know, like I, I like bigger snakes, so that doesn't, you know, affect me much. But like there's something about the island boas specifically that just like they're so different from any other boat constrictors out there you know at least in my opinion just like even looking at the head structure from like a hog island versus your classic red tail like right. just that just the head structure is different like to the to the average person maybe not but if you know your snakes just looking at them they have a very specific look to them that is and very interesting to me as well how you keep them you know they're right. very arboreal mm -hmm. 
they, you know, they really are arboreal animals. These small uh, boa constrictors will sit in the trees a lot, you know. And if you go to Hog Island, if you go to the case of Kinos Islands, you'll find them mainly in trees. You'll find them a lot in trees. Um, so it's just how we keep them, you know. Like I've got a, I've got a lot of Hog Islands, and I keep them in racks. And it, you know, it is what it is. But right. when you see them on the islands and they're sitting you're that high above you you know mm-hmm. it is what it is you know so am i wrong in thinking that bolivians have pretty much completely disappeared as far as availability oh no you're wrong yeah they're they're available yeah they, i just remember i see when i was into the, the when i was keeping the nicaraguans and stuff it seemed like there was a lot more availability but i yeah, they go away. don't really pay attention but no, they're, they're like numerals bows or like brazilian rainbow bows they're going ways right popularity kind of maxes and then they fade and then they go up again so they never keep this constant it's like a bow along a carter um, mm-hmm. um, that's funny that was exactly what was in my head <laughs> you know so it's just it's just a matter of they'll they'll always be back again uh, the important thing for that is that people buy them and they keep them and they breed them they don't let that lineage disappear but they come and go and like the short tails, the Amorale are wonderful because they are a five foot snake that gets chunky, like almost like a like a short tail python. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're beautiful, just great snakes. Yeah, just just great snakes. Yeah. The head's more constrictor, um, but they're they're just neat animals, you know. Yeah. Really What's cool. your favorite out of the South American stuff? For constrictor or for the boa stuff, um, probably Amorale. Okay. Yeah, I think they're they're wonderful animals. I think. Um, I had some in the past and I stupidly sold them, just like Longicotta. I had some great Longicotta and I stupidly sold them. Mm. Um, really cool animals. Yeah, I like them a lot. You know, different than the uh, Central American, um, uh, different than the Sonorans, different than the Nicaraguans, that kind of thing. Head structure is different, body structure is different, um, different for breeding, uh, but just really cool animals, you know. And But now I am like, I've been selectively breeding Sonorans and I've been selectively breeding the Costa Rican stuff for so long that, you know, and I've got so many of them. I'm like, well, it's hard for me to then sell a bunch of that to then buy Amorale and buy Longacotta. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't want to, I want to reduce numbers, not increase numbers, you know? So, and, and I've been, I've been increased. Like I've been getting Nelson's milk snakes. I've been getting, Fair eye, I've been getting hog nose, you know, I've been filling up other spaces with animals I shouldn't necessarily be getting. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So do you, do you work with any of the, like, you know, the quote unquote true like red tail boas? I don't, not anymore. I used to, um, I used to have this beautiful line of, uh, Guianan, uh, red tails, just wonderful. Um, and I don't know why I sold them. Um, I think I was just more, you know, I, whenever I get interested in a locality, I really get interested in a locality. Right. Um, and I think part of it was more like, um, you know, I don't have the space because they, true red tails, true constrictor can get pretty big, you know, like oh, I've yeah. seen animals that were eight feet, 10 feet, you know, yeah, easy. true 10 feet animals. Yeah. And, um, and I just don't have the space for that. You know, right. I've got space for a five foot animal, you know, I don't have the space. For it. So therefore, um, I don't feel that I can necessarily keep that animal uh, the way I'd want to. I need to go out and buy 
a couple of freedom breeder for food, you know, whatever it is, you know, and that yeah. costs a lot of money for just for that there. Also, um, I believe, you know, from the work that I've seen on them, you know, they don't follow the same breeding cycle as Imperator. Mm-hmm. So therefore you're breeding on a, on a different cycle. I got you. Which means that for a room, like my, my breeding is, I do nothing and they breed. With those, I would have to change cycles mm-hmm. for right. animals. And I just don't think it, it's going to necessarily be easy. Um, one day I'd like to get some. Um, I'd like to get more. I'd like to get Amarali again. Um, but um, I'm, I'm not in any rush. Realistically, though, that that's smart because it's something that's something a lot of people don't think of is, you know, you have to think about what you keep has to work for what you for your room and your your lifestyle because like you can't have so many people that so many people that want all these different species and you know different you know types of snakes or boas or pythons whatever but those some people also don't understand that they're on different cycles and different you know different breeding types so you can't exactly keep all of them in the same room and expect them all to breed you know so yeah you know know, a certain type of snake you kind of have to keep within that realm if you if you're on a smaller scale like you know like me and justin you know we have one room dedicated Mm -hmm. to our snakes you know so we kind of have to keep things in that in that room so everything kind of has to fall under the same category where if you're having all this different stuff that has different breeding regimens then it doesn't really work you know and, yeah so i think part of that um and i i have one room i have a basement so right so i've got um i've got animals i got uh, corrales in my office at work um but <clears throat> that's my wild caught emeralds they'll never be right. here um but here in my in my basement i've got um you know 70 60 or 70 boa imperator boa sigma i got 50 or 60 Corrales tree boas. I've got Womas, Brazilian rainbow boas, Sumatran short tails, Duns pythons, um, spotted pythons. I've got Therai, Nelson's milk snakes, <laughs> Western hognose snakes, uh, red footed tortoises, green sanzinia. Um, I think the thing is that once they're there and they're young and you raise them up, they get into that rhythm of that kind of room of the. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so my basement in the winter drops to 65 degrees. And in the summer probably goes up to maybe 80 at most. And I've got some, I've got heat on all of those, on all the racks. I never alter anything. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what it is. I never touch the thermostat on any, any, any rack. It's an 84 degree, um, 86 degree amp, a hotspot. Um, and that's it. So what I find is in the winter, they all move over to the cold spot, which is the front of the cage, front of the rack, which is 72 degrees or 74 degrees or 60 degrees, 65 degrees, whatever it is. They all sit there and just cool down. And three months later, when it's warming up, they all move back again. And and that's when they start, that's when I start pairing them. So, and it doesn't, and it doesn't matter whether it's a Brazilian rainbow boa or a boa or a, like I used to have 70 ball pipes, they all did the same thing, you know? They all follow the same pattern, you know, so they get into that rhythm of that room. Um, now things might be different, like so Sanzinia, you know, I'll probably need to get them cooler. Um, mm-hmm. hognose, 
uh, my Nelson I I'll probably need to get them down into the 50s 55 um, but the rest of the stuff seems to follow just the same kind of standard breeding a boa kind of pattern you know you you talk to like my buddy Ryan young you know you talk to him about his room he breeds um, white lips and all this stuff all in the same room he's not changing he's not making a weird little window for his southerns and his northerns and his right. you know his ringed you know, it's just they follow once they get settled into that that rhythm of that room then they go so yeah awesome mm. i had something else i lost it i was about to say are we have we hit everything just about completely about? unrelated who's your favorite bass player mine <laughs> Yeah. Good call. Um, because I'm surrounded by a room of bases. You don't see them here. I got a lot of bases behind behind me. Um, uh, <laughs> I probably. I know you're a bass player, man. That's awesome. I got. See if I can show my my computer. I got unplug things. I got. I got a bunch of bases. Oh um, man. Yeah. Can I show that? Yeah. So that one. So I got, let's see if I can show it here. Let me see, hold this here. Put this a different way before my computer can crash. This one I built last year. Oh, no way. Oh, yeah, I remember seeing pictures of that one. Yeah. So this is a, hold on, let's see. This is a, a replica of a 1957 precision. So if you sting, if you see Sting's base, this is a replica of that. I built that last summer. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cool. Um, and then, what's the, what wood? What wood did you make that with? That is alder. Um, and then let me see what okay. else I've got. I've got um, one over here. Hold on a second. There's a bass player. Oh, man, if we're gonna if we're gonna get into music, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <man. That's> <laughs> There's a place that I call Pino Paladino. Oh, man, that's beautiful. I, I built this one as well. It's a 64 precision. It's kind of cool. It's all that relic and stuff. I built that one. Um, but then I've got, like, I've got bases. So I, I um, let me see. This one here I've had since I bought this brand new in 1993. My favorite jazz bass. Uh, Love it. I got when I was a somewhat of a musician. Warwick bass. Warwick basses built me this one. Yeah, this is really cool. Yeah. Oh man, that is gorgeous. I got a bunch of them. I got a bunch of basses, man. I love uh, them. That's awesome, man! You're talking. You're talking two musicians here. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a guitar player, and Justin's a bassist. Like yeah, so um, I've had some basses on and off for years. But I, I friend of mine, um, myself a bass player by any means. I just yeah. dabbled with it. Dabble. I'm a guitar player, hardcore. So. Oh, cool! What what what, what guitars do you play? I'm a big acoustic guy. I really like acoustic music and all that. Mm -hmm. But I I dabble in a I dabble in a little bit of everything. I can I can play a play a pretty wide variety of stuff but I, cool. I like i prefer a lot of acu acoustic you know yeah. just simple simple low-key stuff but I, yeah. I can play a little bit of everything yeah a friend of mine um is endorsed by a guitar from paul reed smith mm -hmm. and paul's 
Paul Reed Smith guitars are wonderful. Like Paul's a great, yeah. you know, I know Paul really well. So seeing his stuff is just amazing. When you go to his house and he's got these, you know, you see his first Paul Reed Smith guitar, or second, the first one was in the Smithsonian. You see the second one in his room and you're just like, holy shit, these things wow. are remarkable, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I want, I want to build a, I want to build a guitar next. I want to build a replica of um, uh, David Gilmore's Black Strat, mm -hmm. Pink Floyd. Yep. I, I want to do it with a, one of the big 70s headstocks, which is not normal. So but that's uh, that's my kind of next project. But yeah, bases. Um, so so best favorite bass player. Um, that's a tough one. Uh, Sting is one of my favorite bass players, but he's not a complex bass player. No, not at all. Um, but um, you know, here's my yeah. That's a that's really difficult. Like Sting is my favorite bass player. He also would be great. But you you get the Jacopo Storius and you get the Stu Ham's wonderful. Billy Sheehan is incredible. Yeah, that dude's insane. You know, but there it's all complexity, right? It's it's all mm -hmm. like out of there, you know. But for me, when I hear like um like Tony Levin from um, Peter Gabriel, like when you hear like I think um uh, like um um uh, some of the stuff that Tony Levin does is just out of this world, you know. Mm -hmm. Sledgehammer, the baseline for Sledgehammer is amazing. You hear that, and I think I, I'm much more into that than hearing Billy Sheehan play 4,000 notes. And I love Billy yeah, Sheehan. Yeah, yeah. There is something to be said for that. You know, there's a lot of drummers that are like that. And it's like they're super but, technical, and it's like that's yeah. all. But where does that fit in musically? There's a space. Else. There's yeah, a time right. and space for that there, right? And I'd rather hear, you know, Addicted to the Love or or sledgehammer or that kind of thing you know hear the bass line in that there mm -hmm. then hear four thousand nuts you know and you know my life's music i listen to music every minute of every day almost you know yeah that's um, why i don't listen to many podcasts because i listen to music too much right. <laughs> like that's it you know that's, i'm always listening to music you know and yeah. uh but it's you know I, I get bored whenever i hear overplaying so yeah yeah We'll take it a step further. What's your who's your favorite rhythm section? Uh, rhythm section, Huey Lewis and the News. Uh, probably that would be the ones, the guys in Huey Lewis and the News. We had the like in the 80s, you had the Tower of Power horns, you had a great bass line, bass player section. Yeah, those guys there were great. When you heard like songs like Power of Love and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. just wonderful, just great back in section. Oh, wonderful. Me, me and my wife just went and saw. Dave Matthews back in oh yeah July. I've seen Dave Matthews before and I'm, I'm I'm a huge Carter Beaufort fan like I've I've never been huge in a Dave Matthews like as far as overall my wife likes him yeah. so now like I've gotten into him more but yeah like from the technical level like Carter Beaufort's incredible drummer and then just great seeing yeah. them seeing him and and Stefan together playing was yeah. just it was like they're so locked in. It's ridiculous. you know it's hearing a, a rhythm section lock in together holy yeah. shit dude so. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I and some friends went to see um, Dan Aykroyd and James Belushi do the Blues Brothers stuff. Yeah. Mm. In downtown Tulsa. And it was just out of this fucking world. Like hearing that, you know, it wasn't this, it wasn't the original Blues Brothers band, but it was a, a band put together. Mm -hmm. Right. Hearing those lock in together to hear those classic Soul Man and all that kind of stuff. Oh, just wonderful. Just wonderful. You know, yeah, amazing. I love it. I love hearing a, a rhythm section really get together and mm. and, uh, and play. It's just amazing. Yeah, just yeah, just fantastic. 
Yeah, uh, I'm a I'm a big tool guy too. So Justin Chance. Oh yeah, they're playing a really awesome bass yeah, lines and just they're, really. They're, they're playing Tulsa in the spring, I think, too. Ooh. Yeah, they're going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. They're a great band, man. They're a like an mm -hmm. incredible band. Yeah. Like I can understand why people are like Tools overrated. Like I get that, but at the same time, listening to them just from like the the skill <clears> skills <throat> alone, it's like you cannot deny that. No, they're those are all it, great. Musically and technically brilliant. Yeah, really cool. That album they put out last year was like one of the most anticipated yeah, albums of like decade. the century, man. Everybody was and it was kind of a letdown. Everybody was all about it. Then it came out and everybody was like, Oh it was, just was it was it a tour gig a couple of years ago where a a random guy asked like Eddie Van Halen to take his picture? Right. He was uh, he was he wanted to get his picture taken of, of him facing the stage. And he asked the guy and it turned to be Eddie Van Halen. He <laughs> asked to take a picture and Eddie Van Halen sitting in the, in the 200 seats, you know, of the thing to take his picture. Yeah. Dang, that's crazy. Cool. Yeah. Cool. cool band. Really cool band. Yeah. I'm still toying with the idea of going to see them. I think they're 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 an event to see. Yeah. Yeah. We were lucky in Tulsa. We have a, a really cool music venue called the BOK. Uh, which is one of the top five music venues in the US. So we get the side is incredible and uh, oh, yeah. we get great bands coming through it. And we got the Kane's Ballroom and the Brady Theater, which is just remarkable, you know. So music in the Midwest is, is or it's so central in Tulsa. It's just absolutely incredible for bands coming through. Yeah, we don't, we have to go to Atlanta or Charlotte. Sometimes yeah. we get some that come to Charleston or and yeah. stuff like that. For the most part, you gotta we gotta drive a couple hours to get to any. Yeah, that's you'll the get you'll get the occasional good hole in the wall band in Savannah. Right. Yeah. Like Savannah will they have really good Savannah shows that music are market and it yeah. has not panned out. Dude, Savannah is my is my number one place where I want to retire to. Savannah and then um, and then uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Nashville. So, yeah, I love Savannah. God, we were there in the summer. You know, a couple of months ago. God, I love it. Love. I've always loved Savannah. You know, you guys are lucky to be close to it. I, I miss it. You know? <laughs> living, it's, living. it's bad, man. Like it's pretty, but man, that area can it's be sketchy. To be really? Oh yeah, man. Yeah. There's there's nice areas of Savannah, but a big yeah, part yeah. of Savannah is. Yeah, like, we're we're like, always. You don't want to be alone at night type yeah, deal. Like, we're 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 always staying in like on Bay Street, right in, right on Valentine, oh, right, yeah. right there. Yeah. You know? yeah, and I love it. God, I love it. The same thing with Charleston. You know, I, yeah. I miss like I growing up. You know, when I moved to the U.S., living in Raleigh, and every weekend I used to go to Kitty Hawk. Oh, Kitty Hawk's on the cool. banks. Uh, my friend on a on a beach house there. So every weekend I was there. The giant and if I wasn't there, I was in Mechanicsville in, in Richmond, you know, just as I said, Richmond to see them. So I put on like 44,000 miles on my car in the first year driving to Richmond. Oh, jeez. And uh, God, I, 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 you know, whenever I lived there for like nearly seven years before I moved to Tulsa. And when we moved to Tulsa, I was like, oh, yeah, we, you know, I was like, am I going to miss that? No, I, we went to there all the time. You know, you're just so used to it. Within a year, I was like, oh, yeah, I really miss it. I miss yeah. it a lot. So now, we every summer, we drive to the Outer Banks, thirty-five hundred mile round trip. You know, and and I love it. Uh, I love getting there. We've we've already booked our our beach house for next summer for two weeks. We're we're going to be there in June next year. Can't wait. Okay. I, uh, I miss the East Coast so much. 
you know you guys are lucky to live there it's, it's such a cool yep. such a cool place the no outer plans on the, leaving the outer banks is one area that i really want to go to I've got a buddy that does kayak tours out there. He's yeah, actually, yeah. He's a really good herping buddy of mine. He got some of them king snakes, He got me big into field herping. He's a big reason I'm the field herper yeah. I am today. Um, yeah. but uh he's a he went to Marshall University. He's a herpetologist, but you know, he's mm -hmm. out there doing kayak tours right now. And That's I want cool. yeah, I want to get out to Outer Banks and do some do some herping, man. Yeah, my wife and I um, we do a lot of kayaking when we're up there. It's really cool. It's just so much fun. It's such a great place, you know, and it's, um, well, whenever you live in a landlocked area and you get back there, it's just like the smell of the sea and the sound. Yeah. I've got no desire to sit on a beach. Yep. But dude, just to be near it, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Nope. You guys are <laughs> so lucky. <laughs> Very cool. And you've got cool yeah, animals near you. For sure. You know, you got king, or you got corn snakes nearby, right? You got. Yeah. You know, you got oh, oh, yeah. Like, oh yeah, man. You got some cool stuff nearby. That's pretty neat. You know, I uh, yeah, I'd like, I'd like if you're ever down in the area, you wanna you wanna do some herping, let me know. I got some I got some spots I can put you on a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'll give you a shot maybe next year whenever I'm back. So I'm gonna be back yeah. a couple of times. I've got the IHS show to go to and our meeting to go to in Atlanta. Um and I might do some stuff over on the on the on the coastline. So yeah, man, I've got some. I've got a couple of WMAs that I frequent, a couple roads that I can find a lot of variety on. So, oh, cool. You want to yeah. do some herping? Let me know, man. I, I got you. You find many corn snakes? Uh, occasionally, they've been in years past. They were more frequent. Uh, as of late, they haven't been as abundant. Um, I found a couple. I found a really <clears throat> nice one at a WMA um, this year, but I've only I only found one this year. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I can, I can get to some few areas cause we have access to like your Okatee corn snakes. We, we, yeah, we yeah. live in the area for Okatee. So, you know, Oh, cool. Nate. Yeah, can, I used to, um, I used to produce maybe 25, 30 clutches of corn snakes a year for about oh, yeah, six man. years. So like Miami's and Okatee's and stripes, hypos, caramels, loves of caramels. What was the other one I did? Butters. Mm -hmm. uh, just a bunch, and I got into this totally fortuitously. I didn't want them, <laughs> but I got into them. The, the story is kind of funny, but I got into this fortuitously, and I and I kept a bunch, and I I bred them at the wazoo. I never I never had an incubator. I put them on shelves in my reptile room. Yeah, you know, forgot about them, and then I was like, "Fuck!" You know, pull them, and they're all <laughs> shit out, you know, and they were so funny. But I I got into them. Um, at, at the university where I, I did my PhD and my degree, there was a student who was doing a PhD working on animal behavior. And her subject was she was looking at snakes and um, trying to understand whether enrichment in cages would make a difference, right? So do they have a, a branch or a different substrate or hide box? Does that make a difference to their behavior? It turned out none of it did. <laughs> and uh, But they bought, they bought like, 80 corn snakes, like a ton of them. And, you know, I was buying my rodents from these guys in the university, so I was paying peanuts for the rodents. And at the end of it, you know, I had a good relationship with the group, and um, they called me up, and they were like, uh, all right, well, we got, we got these snakes. Um, uh, do you want them? They, they, gave me, they gave me like 70 corn, 80 corn snakes, oh adult corn snakes. 
I thought they wanted me to buy them, but they just gave me them 80 adult corn snakes, 70 or 80 corn snakes. I, I instantly sold like 30 of them or 40 of them. And I kept, I think I kept maybe 10.30, something like oh, that. Damn. God. <laughs> and start throwing were, stuff together, they, man, at that these point. Were, these were like four feet, you know, eating small rats, kind of. They were big animals. And I just bred them, bred them at the double flushed them, bred them at the wazoo, and wholesale them, you know. But I was, uh, yeah. the cool thing was, like, they, they produced these really cool snows that were really green blotched. Mm-hmm. The sows were really bright green. Um, and then, so they they had snows, albinos, anarthristics. I think it was like anarthristic type ones, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then I bought stripes. I bought from a guy called Phil Draper in the UK. And I bought caramels and butters and hypos. And um, something else. I can't remember what the other one was. But, man, they were just just wonderful animals. But they smelled so bad. Oh, God. It's colubrid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to be expected. My room officially has the colubrid smell. Oh, man. I, I walked. I was like, as of like two days ago, I walked in and I was like, oh, yeah, I officially have That's too right. many colubrids. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I was in, uh, I was in Arlington. At the, you know, because I only live four hours from the Arlington show. And uh, and uh, Bill, uh, Bob Ashley's a really good friend of mine. So I always go down to the Arlington show uh, that he puts on and um, uh, to see Bob. And and I'm walking around it and I saw these like, head palmettos and all this. Kind of, I was like, wow, you know, maybe I should get some of these again. Maybe it'd be cool to have, you know, you see the stripes and you see the hypos. And I was like, maybe I should get it. And then all of a sudden, this aroma kind of wafted across my nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The old limbic yeah. system of my the old emotional brain was like, don't do it, Warren. Don't do it. <laughs> it's just automatic flashbacks, like, oh God, no. <laughs> because I I keep I keep Nelson's milk snakes. I've got I've got T positive Nelsons. And they're just the same. They eaten crap within minutes they just eat and shit and the fair eye are the same you know and i'm just like i don't i don't need any more of these here you know they're cool to have but yeah i like the boas that eat and then four weeks later decided to defecate yeah yeah the king snakes like the king snakes and the looks they're like i'm thinking about eating so let me defecate first yeah let me So, that was that yeah. was what I meant to ask earlier was feeding boas because I remember so there's a whole Herp Nation episode with Vin Rousseau mm. and he talked about seasonal feeding of his boas. Oh yeah, I, I rarely feed my animals. Literally, really? rarely feed. Like I, my Corallus, I feed um, like my adult female emeralds, maybe a medium rat every three or four weeks males maybe a small rat every four weeks uh boas younger ones i feel more frequently um boas um again uh an adult rat maybe every three or four weeks males a small rat every three or four weeks i feed them and then once you get to november like literally what are we at we are november 4th yeah it's the fourth uh probably next week might be the last time i feed them until march 1st Oh wow! And um, so I put them through a, a feed food cycling, and then for a month I'll feed them maybe every week, and then they just go back to normal uh, feeding yeah. every three or four weeks. I need to see. I yeah. know someone was trying to hunt that episode down recently, and I need to see if I can. Yeah, that, all that's that was... to get 
I talked to Vin before about it because, uh, and also Nick Mutton and I have talked about it a lot on very different podcasts, but they're all lost because that was that old, um, her, was it Herb Nation, was it? Yeah. Or, and I think that all disappeared. So I, know. I just remember hearing that episode and it, it opened my, my eyes to right. so much as far as right. like how much, like how yeah. much we're feeding them. Like take whatever you think is normal and then cut that in half. Cut that in half. Absolutely. Yeah. But you can't do it for all animals. Like colubrids, yeah. Yeah. colubrids, you can't, they have the feed. They're at high metabolic rate, you know, so your corn snakes and your king snakes really do need fed every seven to 10 days. Um, but boas and pythons, nah, just not at all. Man. They, uh, yeah, it's funny. Because boas and pythons almost grow more whenever you don't feed them. And you'll notice that, you know, you feed them and you stop. And that's the time they put on length. They don't put on girth. And then the next time they put on girth, you know, so they change dramatically at that point. Whereas if you're feeding them constantly, you just end up with these short, fat snakes. With fat small, snakes. Yeah. Yes. You think it's a hormonal thing? No. I, I just think it's just, it's just like the more you put in, the more it comes out. It's not, they're not uh, testing it. Right. Whereas, whenever you are looking at animals that are on seasonal diets, they tend to digest more, at least utilize more of the nutrients that are going in um, than comes out at the end. So they really put more effort into it. You know. So um, I, I, I'm, I've always been a, a proponent of of seasonal feeding and sparse feeding. Yeah. Definitely, but, especially but, with, with condors and stuff. But calibras, I feed them at the wazoo anytime. I'll feed them whenever they need it, you know, not every three days, but every seven days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is weird, you know, for me. But um, but the boas, the pythons are all. But then again, like I got womas, and they are different. Womas are almost like they're almost like calibras. And I'll feed my womas more frequently than I'll feed than, I'll, than my dunce pythons or my spotted pythons mm-hmm. because they are constantly moving. Yeah. I've always considered Womas like the colubrids of the Python world. They really are. They're I don't good. know why, but I've always seen no, them as that. You're entirely <laughs> right. You're entirely right. They're, they're not the same as as a as a. You couldn't compare them to a even a carbopython. You know, they're right. so active. They're constantly moving around. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I'll feed my Womas medium rats, and within three days, you wouldn't even know they've even had a meal. Jeez. You know, they're just ready to go again. You know, yeah. they're, they're such a... They're the pituovas of pythons. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they just want to... I open up those cages and they're just fucking right out of like heads up, like yeah. trying to fight shit. <laughs> you know? and I'm like, what about this? So I, I got a female... I didn't plan to, but I uh, I was at the Arlington show um, a bunch of months ago and a kid ran up to me and he said, I want to talk to you about boas and Costa Rican tea positives. I'm chatting away to him and he said, come to my table and see these stuff. And I went over and I'm looking and my eye was instantly caught by this adult female woman. And I was like, oh, these are great, but that's neat. And I said, what are you doing with it? He goes, oh, I'm selling it. You know, I, I bought, I bought. I think it was a male, and I wanted to breed to my ball pythons to make wall pythons. Oh, I'm like, all right, cool. And I said, but it's a female woman. That's, that's an adult. That's really neat. And he goes, yeah, I'm just trying to sell it. And he goes, you know, I really want to get some of your Costa Rican tea positive bows. And I said, I will swap you for that female woman. <laughs> yeah. And the next day he called me up and said, let's do it. And he worked up, we worked at a deal and he, sw- he sw- sent me that and I sent him a bow or two. And, uh, and then I was like, well, I've got this, 
I got this adult female woman. I need to get a male. So I called up my buddy, um, Brett Bender. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I said, Brett, I was like, what do you got? I need a male. And he said, right, I got this and this and this. And I said, great, I'll take that one. And he sent it to me, you know, and so maybe next year I'll, I'll breed from it. But it, this woman is out of this. Well, these women are, are out of this world. They're, you know, golden. They're not dark. They're amazing animals. But Jesus Christ, dude, they they, they want to eat the shit out of mm. you. <laughs> yeah. They are not. If wrong. it moves, it does. It really does. Like I opened the cage with a, with a hook and it's from like, <laughs> the hook, you know. And they're like, like fucking like, king snakes, man. Yeah. <laughs> They're just bigger, you know. They're, they're part crazy. of the meth propeltus. Yeah, I call those yeah. spazzy king snakes. I call those the meth propeltus. They you are, can't uh, trust them. I'm, I'm looking at it thinking, shit, whenever I put that male in there, is he gonna survive? Or is he gonna... Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least with the boas, I can trust him. But these well, those veterinary Am I breeding or putting them into a fight the to the death? Oh, yeah, right. That's close to it, you know. And I've been thinking about getting blackheaded pythons, and I'm like, Fuck, they're just worse than Wilma's. What am I just doing? bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool stuff. P and, P and Cody have a blackhead, and Cody hates that thing. Really? <laughs> it's yeah, so cool. You, you walk, it strikes the glass. Like you can't even go near it without it. Yeah. Being just a complete dick. Yeah, then it's funny because at the at the Arlington show, at the Arlington show, I you know I took out this woman and I'm holding it. Everything's great. You know, it's wonderful. And I get it here and put it on heat. <laughs> it changed entirely. Like, oh, I'm warm. Yeah, <laughs> everything changes when you put it on heat, man. Everything like, changes oh. when that thing gets warm. <laughs> Bites everything, and yeah, it's uh, it's funny. That's how it was with the ackies. I pulled the ackies out of the bag and was holding them, and they're so cool. And then it's like, this is awesome. Yeah. And then you get them in heat, and it's like you go near them, and it's like, no, zing, can't can't touch. Yeah, them. They're really cool. I I love ackies, and and I would love to have Varanus. Uh, some of the, the small, like um, uh, the, the Tristis orientalis or the or the Ackies yeah, yeah. uh, or the Kimberleys. Um, but I, I, you know, whenever I do travel, it's like, so whenever next summer we'll be away for three weeks, go onto the Outer Banks mm-hmm. and back again. Or I'll be away for a week or 10 days in Costa Rica. Or I'll be, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm just like, well, who is going to look after? Yeah. I don't want my wife down. It's different for our tortoises. She can throw in you know, fruit or, or whatever mm-hmm. to the tortoises. But I don't want her to have to feed, you know, insects to this or that, you know. So I, um, that's why I don't keep them. But I, I, I if if we didn't have that, I'd keep leopard geckos. I would keep piranhas. I'd keep, you know, the dwarf runners. You know, I'd keep some of the cave geckos. You know, they're cool animals. Really, really cool stuff. I just, got, some, I some just got some cave geckos, actually. Oh, neat. Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah. The dark ones with the big fingers like kind mm-hmm. of those, you know I've got, yeah i've got i've got the chinese cave geckos oh they're awesome they're yeah. so cool i'm super excited to have them yeah they're a neat animal you know and it's for me i'd love to have them but it's same with um with um uh, what do you call them the uh why is my mind gone blank the uh Coleonics? No, fucking bigger ones that eat vegetables and they're. Where's my hold on? My, my brain. Euromastics? Not Euromastics. Yeah, why did I think? Why is my Euromastics? You know, some Euros of the Euromastics. Yeah. When you get them warm and you see the yellows coming out and the oranges coming out and man, we used to. I used to work in a reptile store in Belfast and we had a bunch of them. Those once you got them warm, they were wonderful. Yeah. 
They're cool. wonderful animals. When you kept them cold, they look terrible. They look fucking turds on the fucking floor of the cage. <laughs> when you warmed them up, man, they were better than bearded dragons. They were so mm -hmm. cool. You know, Joel Smitty here's got a soft spot for your Oh yeah, yeah, he loves them. They were cool. They the first just... lizard I ever had was a Euromastics. Oh really? Yeah, they're had, yeah, they're had so a couple cool. Over the years, I, I do miss having them. But they're just so mistreated because people just think keep them warm enough. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's it's. And, uh, that's been a big adjustment just with the Ackies is keeping them as hot as I have. Like it's up yeah. the room temperature, the ambient temperature, like crazy. Yeah. And it's, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. just feels wrong. Like baking something. Yeah. yeah. This feels <laughs> too hot. <laughs> I love it. It just think, feels wrong. I think if I, if I, if I didn't have like the wall of Corrales in my office at work, I would have a couple of big cages of, um, of, uh, a blue tree monitors like McCray Eye, mm -hmm. Racinus. Yeah. I think that's what I'd like. You know, like two of those, just with one or two in each. Though I, I love those things. They're they're just just mind blowing animals. You know, but I just can't. I just you know, as I say, when that's I when, when when we're in non COVID times, I'm away for three weeks in the summer, or I'm away for ten days in Costa Rica, or I'm you know away for seven days in New Mexico or whatever. You know, and I just can't ask other people to come and feed them for me. You know, mm -hmm. so things are different. I can just stop feeding snakes for two weeks, then go off for three weeks, and they're fine. Yeah. Like, I, like literally every year, my boas give birth when I'm away, so I stop feeding them two or three weeks before I go away, and I'm like, "That's good, probably going to give birth, and that's probably going to give birth." And I come back, and there's open up a tub, and there's a bunch of babies, and you just hope <laughs> no stillborns, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you know. But it's, um, yeah, it's just with lizards, you can't do that. Yeah. For sure. Well, we are at the, the over the two hour mark, Mr. Oh, wow. Doc, Mr. Doctor Warren. Mr. So where where can uh, where can people find you? If they want to, um, what what can they do? The best thing is like Instagram. I've got a okay. I use this boa booth um, uh, one on Instagram. I should change it at some point. Um, and same same on Facebook. It's boa booth. Um, you know, people that want to talk to me, they can find me on Facebook. Just Warren Booth. Just message me. Don't and don't ask for a, a a friend request because if I don't know you, I'm not gonna accept it. <laughs> and I've got I've got like three thousand of these waiting yeah. friend requests. And I, if you, the last thing, you know, if you at least email or message me and say, "Hey, Warren, I've heard this. I'd love to, you know," and then we can go from there. But just not a random friend request. But but you can message me on it or email me. Just. Um, you can find my email. Just if you type in my name into Google, you'll find a, an email address for me. But Instagram is generally the easiest one. You know, that's what I use most. You know, it seems to be the easiest one to post pictures on uh, and go from there. You know, but I'm always happy to talk reptiles. Always happy to help people. You know, if they got a problem or if I can help. So awesome. Okay. Well, y'all heard it here. Bo Booth on Instagram. That's Hit right. him up. He's the man. We uh, definitely appreciate you coming on. It's been yeah. a, a long time coming. Like I said, this is something I've wanted to make happen for yeah, at least two years, I think. Yeah, we've been we've been <laughs> talking about having time. you on for a while, and it's yeah. uh, it's great to actually have you on. Good boa talk, and I know a lot of a lot of boa guys are gonna eat this episode up. Oh, cool. Well, I appreciate the invite, you know, so yeah, I'm man. always happy to talk boas. I'm always happy to talk snakes. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anytime, just let me know. Awesome. All right, man. Well, we really appreciate it, brother. Have a great night. You also, guys. Have a great night. Later. Easy. Right. Thanks again. Yep. Bye. All right. All right, bye. Episode...
140, 140. in the books. Thank That's you. A good one. Thank you to Steve Sanctuary and yeah. Venom Hot Sauces for sponsoring yes. and making this show possible. Yes. And big thank you to Dr. Warren Booth for joining us for this awesome episode. And uh, yeah, I think it was a great one. A lot of good yeah, information, I mean, if, if a lot of good content. Think about it. We really haven't covered a whole lot of boa stuff yeah we like haven't boas. I, mean, I think we did like we're python Kaluber we guys at heart we so did that i mean corralis episode with ian that was at least over that was over that a year was a ago a while ago um, that was like two years ago dude. yeah i mean we just we haven't done a lot of yeah. a lot of boa related stuff so it was good to, yeah to change it up a little bit yep. always good we will see everybody monday yep. night at 9 p.m eastern for snakes and stogies episode 98 and y'all will hear me next week we desperately need to figure out what we're going to do for episode 100. I keep saying I'm going to talk to Phil about it and figure it out, and then it just doesn't happen because I get sidetracked. Dude, let me pop on for episode 100. Okay. I'll pop on. What's Word. Let's do it. We'll figure something out. So. Oh, wait. It's Mondays. It is. Work, it's I Monday work, nights. I work Monday nights. Oh. Hmm. That's lame. Maybe I can get out early. Maybe. It starts at 9. Yeah. We close at 8. Sometimes oh. I don't get out till like 9.30. Just call and say. It's a good idea. <laughs> Anyways, right, we'll y'all. see you all Monday. If if not, we'll you'll hear from us again on Thursday. Yep. Thank y'all for listening.